brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a Midi clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Big Tech's ordinance has everything from complete firearms to OEM and aftermarket parts. If you're looking to put together your first AR-15, they have everything from those parts that you need to the tools that are going to be essential. If you're looking for suppressors, night vision, handheld lights, weapon lights, sights or optics, you name it, Big Tech's has it all. Not only that, they're offering all those brands that we like. Go visit them at BigTechsOrdinance.com. Overwatch Precision is a team of civilians and combat veterans based in Phoenix, Arizona, that employ industry-leading production methods, coatings, and materials in their striker-fired polymer-framed pistol trigger systems. With an internal engineering team focused on thoughtful design, Overwatch's flat-faced and curved triggers safely deliver a mechanical advantage to your carry or duty Glock, Walther, CZ, P10, and Smith & Wesson MMP 2.0 with improved function and increased accuracy. See more at overwatchprecision.com. Filster makes awesome holsters. But not only that, they also happen to be one of those companies that are trendsetters. A lot of their designs are emulated by other companies. Not only does Filster make those holsters, but they also provide concealment systems like the Enigma, the Flex. They also have a lot of solutions when it comes to concealment solutions for medical. If you need to have a concealment first aid kit, they happen to sell them. Check them out at filsterholster.com. Primary Arms Government recently showed off a new giveaway, which features a new Daniel Defense M4 V7 rifle, complete with GLX 1-6 power first focal plane rifle scope, PLX mount, and more. These monthly giveaways are only open to first responders and members of the military, so there's way less competition for the big prize. Entry is also completely free with no purchase necessary, ever. So if you want to have a chance to win, just visit primaryarms.com government and hit the giveaway button at the top. Walther is the performance leader in the firearms industry, renowned throughout the world for its innovation since Carl Walther and his son Fritz created the first blowback semi-automatic pistol in 1908. Today, the innovative spirit builds off the invention of the concealed carry gun with the PPK series by creating the PPQ, PPS, and the Q5 match steel frame series. Military, police, and other government security groups in every country of the world have relied on the high-quality craftsmanship and rugged durability of Walther products. Walther continues its long tradition of technical expertise and innovation in the design and production of firearms. For more information, visit WalterArms.com. Hey everyone, Matt Lanfer here with Primary and Secondary. Welcome to Modcast. Today's episode is number 330. We're going to be talking about taking ideas and turning them into usable 
good products. It's going to be a cool discussion. Have some really cool people here to, to talk about this whole process. And they've all been there. They've done it. I haven't. I usually, as a matter of fact, I've sent ideas, ideas to some of these guys, John specifically. And he's like, yeah, it's a good idea, but here's where it's, where it's wrong. And holy crap. You're totally right. Your solution's way better. Um, today is February, February 1st already. It's unbelievable. Um, my background is in mostly using stuff. And on occasion, I get an idea, but I don't know how, what to do with that idea. So I have friends like these guys. I can say, hey, this is what I think. And then they say, that's dumb. And it's done. <laughs> and, and maybe some might make something and not tell me and make a million dollars. Um, the whole process, though, to me is absolutely fascinating. Um, so something like this, and I already talked about it before we started, a little ring and a clip on a flashlight? Yeah. Just kind of buy that. Who would buy that? And I have them on so many flashlights because it is so. It for me, it is a functional upgrade. Um, same with Adam stuff with my with my thirteen oh ones. Hell with my eight seventies. I need to get them for my Mossbergs. Good, good upgrades with John's. Hell, can't even start with John. And where to begin? Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. Uh, yeah, with Ben. Hmm. <laughs> little chassis things <laughs> and, and michael so michael has an interesting thing that he has to do he has to interpret someone's idea and hopefully be able to fulfill it where the other person has this expectation and that's something i couldn't i no wow i, I couldn't do that um so awesome awesome panel to discuss this stuff my background's in law enforcement been doing it since last century yeah, end user. It's just cool to be among these kinds of guys and, and hear what their perspectives are on this stuff. So I'm going to turn it over to Adam to start with uh, backgrounds. Before that, pay attention to who these guys are, what, what companies they represent, where they can be found. Um, because something I really like to say with every episode is make sure you are following or that you are supporting those sources that you have found to be beneficial. What I mean by that is if these guys are providing usable information that's helpful to you, you probably should follow them on social media. If they're producing something that is especially useful and helpful for you, it might, they might even provide something that might change your perspective. You might want to share their, their, their uh, content as well. The whole algorithm thing on all the platforms do not work in our favor. Right now, it seems the entertainment side is way more popular. Nothing wrong with entertainment. Entertainment is, is fun. It's, it's, it's great. We focus a little bit more on ser serious facts, the, the, the real world stuff. And that's just not as popular. And all these guys, their business is to work in the real world. And unfortunately, yeah, these can be very entertaining people, but their products aren't going to be getting the support they deserve. And that's where you come in as a listener. So when you hear what they have to say and you like it, make sure you're giving them likes and shares and subscriptions. That goes for everything primary and secondary it's been a couple minutes now. You probably have, should have already hit the like button. I'll give you a second here. Hit that like button. Okay, thank you. Adam, background. How's it going? Thanks for having me on again, Matt. It's always fun, good adventurous time. Yeah. Uh, my name's Adam Roth. I own Eridus Industries, which uh, currently is mostly focused on making high-end, usable, uh, hopefully well thought out shotgun accessories. Um, not to dive too deep into my background because you know, I've kind of hashed it out before, um, but you know, I have zero background in anything that I do <laughs> for the most part. You know, I got a college degree in business, 
uh, couldn't get it really a, a business type of job. So went and worked in a coal mine for a few years. And uh, while I was on a midnight shift, just kind of thinking about like different firearms, gear loadouts, um, you know, the thought of, yeah, carrying magazines for ARs and AKs, you know, pistols, whatever, you know, other long guns, it's pretty easy. Not really a great solution for shotgun ammo. And this is also before even like the Velcro uh, shell cards were really available. So, I mean, this was 11, 11 years ago or something like this. Um, and basically started thinking like, hey, there should be, why, why isn't there some sort of mechanically detachable shell carrier and then you can carry multiple, you know, multiple carriers essentially. And, you know, it was, uh, it, it was kind of bred off of the idea of a ready mag, um, you know, which those aren't really around too, too much. True, true. But, uh, but yeah, basically just something that can clip onto the side of the gun, and, you know, pop off quickly. So, I mean, that's kind of where it all started and just sort of, you know, had to figure it out from there one very small step at a time. Um, and, you know, thankfully one product grew into several, grew into many, and there's a, a line of shotgun accessories now that we use for, you know, 870s, you know, Mossberg 500s, 590s, the bread and butter from the Beretta 1301. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, it's always about trying to make sure that things are good, usable. Um, I'm always checking myself with, you know, friends and instructors, making sure that I don't turn into the good idea fairy yeah. uh, that thinks something's a good idea. And then all of a sudden, you know, it turns out that <laughs> it's maybe not such a good idea. So, you know, I, that was one of the things that I was pretty interested about this topic in particular is, you know, it's easy to come up with ideas, but making sure you're coming up with good ideas that can be implemented and, you know, Lord willing be scaled and go from there. But And you play hockey. Listen, it's one of the few things that I can do that I'm able to turn my brain off from business for an hour. Uh, and so that's, that's really the name of that game. So you posted recently on Instagram and probably, and I think Facebook too. Um, and it was true. You posted a picture of 1301. And essentially the caption was something along the lines of pretty much everyone's trying to emulate this. And it's true because it's functional and it's a decked out Eridus 1301. Yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of those parts just kind of started simply because it's like, I don't, I don't necessarily know the uh, market reach or demand of some of these products, but yeah. I'm also kind of in a position where, if there's something that I just personally want yes. uh, that doesn't exist, I'm able to make it happen. And, you know, thankfully for the most part, those kind of ideas have been well received by you know, oh, yeah. the, the market, so to speak. But, you know, again, at the same time, you know, <laughs> you, you don't want to buy into your own hype that like, Oh, I'm making good stuff. Everything's going to be great. You know, you always want to, you know, check with everybody, you know, check with the people in the know, um, put everything through its proper paces, make sure that it you know, is actually able to be implemented well and yeah. is in fact a good idea and a, a real solution, not just a, you know, a good idea. Fairly. Yeah. Well, I, and I think that post definitely shows that because that's true. When someone gets a 1301, one of the first things a lot of people do, at least within the primary and secondary realm is, okay, let's go to Eridus and we need to deck it out. Right. I do my best. Yeah. It's awesome. Well, let's see here. Who should we pick on next? Let's go with Andrew. 
I was afraid you'd say that. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was, I was born an engineer and, um, I jumped into medical device design first and, mm. uh, yeah, that was sort of um, where I've actually spent most of my career. Uh, Can we get back the... into that and make some real money for a change? <laughs> <laughs> it's too, it's too much regulatory. It takes oh. too much financing. Yeah, um, but I uh, did a lot of competitive shooting, and I think that was when I started to kind of come up with some ideas. And um, you know, the first one that really saw the light of day was the switchback. Um, it would look very, very different at the beginning. Um, Chris Costa was a great partner in that first one. Um, and we really learned a lot, um, taught me a lot of, about the, the industry, the business and everything in between. And, um, you know, after that, I uh, had the idea of kind of attachable battery storage brought to us by a Stockton uh, police officer uh, here in California. And, um, that kind of spawned the cell vault line as, as you guys know. And then, um, yeah, just, uh, kind of it's very similar usually where some you know external subject matter expert comes to to theorem and um, we kind of partner with that and kind of like you said you know you sort of filter out the good idea fairies from the good ideas and um you know really look at margins and um, scalability of, of different things um and then those are the ones that that live and um been doing that now for about six seven years and um it's just been, it's been awesome. Um, I, I really enjoyed it and, you know, kind of continue to wake up every day, kind of looking for that next thing. Um, yeah. so, yep. That's awesome. And, and so I, I think I've been saying the name of the, your company wrong. <laughs> I, I don't know that I, you know, at this point, I'm not sure I'm <laughs> the guy to get to say anymore. Yeah. Uh, we always said theorem kind of like an engineering theorem, okay. um, but the way it's spelled and with everything, it's like, you know, I, I think I, I just, um, I'll add my vote to whatever the, the theorem consensus. sounds good. All right. Cool. <laughs> Michael. Uh, yeah. My name is Michael Boudreau. I'm the product manager and member of engineering team for unity tactical. Um, for those that are unaware, we make, you know, everything from weapon optics mounts to helmet accessories to some of the best switches on the market for rifle lights and everything in between, you know, there's our catalog has become very wide. Um, at this point, um, my background, uh, prior to unity was, uh, I worked for an oil field company doing some, uh, we'll call it light engineering and design work. Um, a lot of, uh, design for additive manufacturing and design for subtractive. So, um, kind of done a lot of, a lot of CAD modeling, things like that. And so, um, at this point, even though I've only been here for six months, it's been, uh, I've been moving, it's been moving me more towards the engineering side than the product management side. And, you know, still wear a lot of hats and do both, but, um, especially the last, uh, last couple months, been a lot of the engineering side, but yeah. Awesome. Yeah, pretty much anything Unity, it's gonna be it's gonna be great. <laughs> Agreed. John. Just a sec. Oh gosh. <laughs> I'm I'm taking I'm taking notes about stuff that could be good to talk about. Uh, I'm, I'm we can John do a sequel Allen, to this. The, right. No, we'll 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 write up an essay. Um, <laughs> I'm John Houtman. I'm the owner of Filster Holsters. I've been doing that since i mean we're 10 11 years into this now my background is in art and design uh and from there i was an auto mechanic and then i got into uh firearms while i was an auto mechanic and i started off by teaching myself how to make holsters and uploading all of that mess onto youtube um just as kind of like a uh the lesson that I had learned from being a mechanic is uh, don't be the first person to work on something that no one's touched before. Hmm. Uh, 
let someone else do that and watch them. So I'm like, I'm going to make these holsters and I'm going to be the guy that gets watched screwing it up. And that eventually somehow turned into a concealment products business where we make a variety of uh, pretty high tech uh, concealment products that are a little atypical, but uh, are very ergonomic focused. Uh, I'm running at elevator pitch, but yeah, you can check us out at filsterholsters.com and uh, ask us a bunch of questions about whatever you want. It's not like you've the, ever been on before. He uh, makes the right. belly band holsters, right? The yes, belly the belly band, band exactly. <laughs> right. No, we make those um, thunderwear, smaller than back holsters. And you also have a very successful group helping yes. out a lot of people. We don't need to name because yeah. we bring in some unwanted. They're they're already there. If they're right. listening, they're already uh, in the group. Uh, we can get into that as a that'll that'll come up later in the episode, I'm sure, as we get into talking about how things come to market. Yeah, yeah. And I have a similar process with writing. Ben. Uh, my name is Ben. I'm a co-owner of Flux Defense and Snake Staff Systems. Um, if uh, if you don't know what what those are flux defense is uh it's a uh i guess a replacement frame for the uh p320 uh system i guess my i'll go into my background and that'll say why i made it but uh i uh i wanted to build like the best personal defense weapon and that being a uh, small, easily transportable, concealable um, weapon that's also incredibly easy to fire as well as uh, plenty of firepower, uh, if that makes any sense. And the, my, the 320 is perfect for that. <laughs> Absolutely three, perfect for it. Three, we started with Glock like eight eight or nine years ago. My business partner, uh, my best friend at the, at the time, we, we grew up together, but uh, he came down to my basement here and I was showing him a really my first CAD design really really bad horrible uh but he's he's a genius and he uh I don't know we started we started from there we started just drawing up ideas going back and forth uh arguing for ever over stupid little things little details that may have mattered some some certainly mattered <laughs> yeah, yeah and then uh slowly got to uh launch four four years ago uh this january we launched um with our original glock products which were uh a bit of a compromise um too much of a compromise i mean they work for smaller people i can do very good work with them but uh they're not great for for everybody um, and then progress to the SIG line of things that they, so that's where the SIG came about, which I still hate the P320. I've tried as, is I've tried, I've, I've built two different, like $1,500 nicest P320s you could, you could have. And I, I, 
I don't like them. I, I just don't like them. However, the operating system exactly in our, yeah, the operating system for us has been perfect, which we, we were thinking we started with the Glock because it was a proven perfect. Everyone has a system. Too. Yeah. Everyone has one. Um, at that time it was something like 60 over 60% of police had them. Oh yeah. Um, and in our tests, like, uh, our, our systems drastically improve the average shooter uh, oh, in yeah. terms of accuracy over time. So we started with that because it's, it's a good system. And then we went, once the uh, M17 was adopted, I still don't think it <laughs> maybe is the best uh, at all, but at the same time, it meant that it passed certain levels of reliability and durability. And then we were able to take a look, a serious look at it with the FCU system able to throw that into our chassis like that i was able we were able to design from the ground up and uh create a pdw sure not not totally from the ground up but in terms of around the operating system so it's done very well in every single the demand is huge yeah yeah um both i guess the the demand is yeah the demand is insane so you were going to sell so your background Sorry. Yeah. Background. I was just, oh, I, I, uh, I'm the one that, that dis- I shifted the, the discussion. That's my fault. Um, my background, I don't have a, uh, very great professional. I don't know. I've been all over the place. I've had many, many jobs, many jobs. Um, but I've, I've always been mechanically minded. Mm. I've always loved building things. I've always loved starting businesses since like the first grade. And uh, even though I could, Flux is like the first really successful one, just because I, I don't know, I'm not, I'm not good at a lot of things and uh, bad ADHD. And so um, at a certain point in my life, I down in Mexico below the border, I realized that what I, uh, I, I, lived, I realized that I lived up in a, I grew up in a special, beautiful, safe bubble that was uh, glorious and not representative of the real world. And especially mm-hmm. up until now, I mean, I realized that evil exists and yeah. bad people really do crazy, bad things. Uh, movies was are Mexico your first time now. getting kidnapped. <laughs> uh, yeah. Luckily I didn't, I didn't actually get kidnapped. Uh, I didn't, I didn't have things personally to me. Although it was the last I was, I was more a missionary, uh, down below the border. I'm no longer Mormon. I don't know what I believe anymore other than I'm here now. This experience is awesome. And I, I love, I love, I love life. I love people, but I want to know about, I want to know about you jumping into CAD. Cause that's not just something you just kind of, this this is Uh, fun. I'm going to do this. And and here we have a, a usable product. I took a I took a couple courses of engine like a intro to engineering in high school, and like a, a through uh, through a college, uh, but like intro to engineering like it was I didn't remember any almost anything from it. I through building things for years and years I learned a lot. I, I used to make knives and I learned a lot of uh, general engineering through just making things and then, and then talking to other engineers. Um, but yeah, I just, I don't know. I don't know why, but I just started drawing stuff. I downloaded a cat. I downloaded a fusion 360 and then just started drawing things. 
and I never took a course. I never, I barely even use YouTube. So I, I draw like other engineers watching me draw. They're like, they probably, and that's, I don't draw the proper way at all. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so I, I pretend to be an engineer for a living, I guess. Good stuff. Um, and then the snake staff systems is tourniquets. They're uh, little micro like tourniquets, I guess, dialed in for EDC, like specialized exactly for uh concealed carry or uh this size the size is hard to show in, in re relation to nothing else yeah. but it's the size of like a g19 mag i wanted to carry one on my person and i found it difficult uh or, or just cumbersome running it down the leg or whatever else uh the other techniques of carrying eqs they're just the best that i found was the filster flat pack thank you john um, but even then, like, it's just, I just want, I felt like I could minimize it past that. Um, so I just started messing around on that and here we are now. Uh, it's getting favorable reviews so far too. Yeah. 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 It's awesome. They've been being tested by a lot of people, a lot of military, especially, unfortunately, a lot of those we can't really publish, but, yeah. uh, <laughs> but our own Andrew Fisher yeah was one who yeah. went hands-on yeah yeah we actually just made friends with nar as well uh we're mm -hmm. going down to nar cool in like a month um the vp came hey by the Andrew fisher's here hey look at that look at the devil. <laughs> um so it's yeah i'm hoping to get you know we're, we're working on having real studies done on them like actually publishable scientific studies which will be great andrew is helping with uh one of those awesome uh, or well probably a few but one guy um so sorry for the rambling but no <laughs> good stuff good stuff so I'm i have a talking. i have a shotgun question to blast out for whoever wants to answer it because i'm very interested in finding out something from all of you and that is how do you decipher of all these good ideas because the good idea fairy how do you figure out which one you should be pursuing? Well, someone said this to me uh, a, a number of years ago, back when I was in an abandoned in high school and college. Our philosophy was that just accept the fact that 80% of the ideas you're going to have are just ideas that uh, get you to the other ideas, right? Like 80% of the ideas you're going to have are probably crap. Um, 10% of them are going to be interesting and maybe not actionable or relevant. And then 10% of them are going to be actionable and relevant products. So get beating yourself up over bad ideas or ideas that don't, that aren't in the top 20%. You have to have them. They're important. They're the ideas that get you to the other ideas. Um, I favor a process that's referred to as bias towards action. So you have an idea and you immediately start the process, whatever it is, like you uh, take a second look at whether or not it's feasible, you know, is this an idea or is it a solution, right? Because there's a difference between ideas and solutions. We all have ideas, whether or not it's a solution is a, is a, is a different question entirely. So the idea occurs, you evaluate, evaluate it in terms of whether or not it's the solution, whether or not it's a solution to a to the actual problem, because sometimes things are solutions to problems that are symptoms of other problems. And you don't want to just make band-aid products. You want to address the underlying issue, right? Um, 
And then from there, you take the next step. Like, okay, you know, uh, what would it take to make this? Do we have access to the manufacturing technology required to make this? Um, uh, do we have uh, product customer fit? Because we have ideas all the time where it's like, we can't put that in front of our, our customers because we don't have, a, we don't have a, a relationship with our customers that would cause them to buy this particular product from us, right? So there's all these different opportunities for the, you know, that 80% to not come to life. And somewhere within the first two or three questions, serious questions that you ask about an idea, it falls off and then you go away. And you can do this process in about five minutes of like actually thinking about it or talking to someone about it. And that kind of like, never be afraid to have the idea, never be afraid to express it to someone, spitball it with someone, take five minutes to talk about it. And then that idea is gone, but you've all got the practice of iteration. You stay primed for bias towards action because once in a while you'll hit something where you are checking a whole lot of boxes. And all of a sudden within about an hour, you've got a first draft of something. And if you didn't discuss it and if you didn't talk about it and if you didn't exercise the bias towards action muscle, you wouldn't be primed to act rapidly on an actual idea and then start um, making progress towards it. Because the rest of the process, the actually getting the thing made and testing it and, you know, all the other bits and pieces is just going to take a year, you know, Whatever it is you're making, budget 12 months for it to, to come to market. But you want to get that part out of the way as quickly as possible. What he said. <laughs> I mean, I think a little bit of it just kind of comes along with experience and figuring out what details of the process are actually most important early on. You know, I kind of look back to some of the first things that I did. And man, I, I just wasted so much time and energy and effort into details that ended up never even coming to matter. Um, and, you know, sort of figuring out how to look at the bigger picture and learning to prioritize, you know, whether it's design elements or, or whatever. Um, okay, this is where I actually need to start with this, or this is, is where I need to actually start with it. Um, so, I mean, I'm sorry if that doesn't make much sense. It, it sort of makes sense in my head just because, you know, I've been through it. But, you know, it, it's easy in the early processes, especially for guys that, you know, don't have experience with that sort of thing. Um, getting hung up on little details that, mm -hmm. you know, don't matter early and may not matter overall. And, yeah, just kind of figuring out, like, where is actually the right place to start with it. And I also want to say that uh, I took a note. I did chuckle when Ben was talking and, and chuckled about his very first yeah. CAD design because, like, man, yeah, I, th uh, I think about my first CAD design and, you know, the first time I showed it to people and it's uh, good, good times, good times. I, I yeah, think – sorry, go ahead, Matt. No, you, you're good. Oh, that wasn't Matt. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was just going to piggyback on both both of exactly what, what uh, both John and you just said – I think uh, the the shitty thing about experience is like a, it's true. Like it's certainly it's at this point I'm I may I guess we probably are very able to have an idea and like John says, like within an hour. I mean, you can quite easily. I mean, even honestly, under an hour, you can know 
whether something is, is a good idea or not, especially if you have a, a business partner or a, a partner that you can spitball with, you can get pretty good by yourself. If, if you are a certain person that can really critically analyze and, and uh, kind of, you know, torture, if you can split your mind into the two, to the two people arguing back and forth, you can do it, but it's best to have a second party that you can talk about that with. And then with experience, like you, without experience, you just, unfortunately you, it's going to take longer. It's going to be uh, more of a pain. It's going to take, um, it's going to take that experience. Like you're going to have to just uh, slowly obtain it. It took us, I mean, it took us years and years of messing with different designs and different ideas and different products to ever come up with anything that I was like, finally, Oh, this, this is, this is it finally. Uh, so I, I don't know. It's super hard to dumb down, down to, uh, you know, like a, a one sentence thing, but, um, I would say careful and a careful evaluation of everything that, that has been said thus far. Um, the, the, the feasibility, the marketability, the, you know, along with marketability, like I think Andrew Fisher at the onset, uh, Andrew said, assess the need. Like, is, is this, is there really a need for this product or is this just another one of these products that's going to be on the bottom of shot show that people are standing around all day for a whole week, just trying to sell it to people. And yet no one wants it because it's not fulfilling a need. Um, but yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to piggyback on kind of what Adam had said as well. Just that uh, for me, at least, so in our organization, uh, Trent tends to be the ideas guy in general. Um, but uh, there's a lot of back and forth on pretty much a daily basis, you know, of, oh, like, why don't we do this? And it's like, okay, well, what's the, you know, pros and cons? Like, is there a need for this? Is there not? Um, I find that I personally struggle with almost the other end of like, I'll shoot myself down before I even like discuss it with someone. I'll be like, you know, shoot a lot of holes in my own idea and then be like, oh, maybe it's really not worth it. And then just kind of sit on it for a while and then eventually talk about it and be like, oh no, like maybe that probably is worth moving, you know, another step. Um, So it's definitely a balance. And I definitely, it's, you know, as as said, uh, experience definitely plays into it a lot. Um, but just finding that that right zone of oh yeah, this is a good idea. I should pursue that. No, this is a bad idea um, and not needed. But yeah. I'm I'm always rushing to the first functional prototype because if I usually don't know what I don't know, and it's taking that functional prototype no matter how awful it is and getting it into the user's environment and really uh, testing it that way, like knee deep in the failure of that is usually when I find, you know, the right way or, or, or truly know that it is in fact not a good idea. And so kind of, yeah, the biased action that John was talking about um, let's make one is like, I think probably falls out of my face most weeks. And, And that's kind of been a good, a good mantra for us. Yeah, that's been huge for me personally with the background in a lot of additive stuff is just how 3D printers make that so easy to be like, oh, <laughs> is this a good idea? I can have it in my hand by the end of the yeah. day and see if I, if it like passes the first sniff test, you know? Yeah, it still feels like cheating to an old guy like you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's it's fantastic. The speed, the speed at which right now um, you can start with a uh, cocktail napkin sketch to CAD 
to a 3D print is like 48 hours if you get, you know, express from Proto Labs or Zometry or whatever. And then you've got the thing in your hand and it's either, you know, 500 bucks that you just put on the shelf as a reminder to when you had that idea that cost you $500 or <laughs> it's something you look at and you say, you know what? We could probably tack towards the bullseye for this product concept in two or three moves, two or three more three prints, at which point we're only into this for maybe $2,000, at which point the sort of like certainty of the outcome starts to justify the R&D development. At which point, you know, the, the escalating cost seems really feasible in compared to what the uh, upside product potential is at the, at the other end of this. So like the bias towards action is like the, the, the real thing. Um, the, the thing that I run into all the time is wondering whether or not it's solving an actual problem, because there are a ton of great ideas. There are a ton of great ideas that are being uh, brought to market by brands that are, you know, like in the multi-million dollar uh, sales volume range. And it's like, this is a neat little widget. This company seems to be doing well. What problem does this actually solve? Right? Does this solve the problem that customers think they need something like this? And therefore, I mean, there, there are a ton of like great high quality products out on the market from very successful companies. And, I'm, and I just have no idea, like when you dial scrape past the surface of it being cool, I have literally no idea why anyone thinks they actually need it. Right. There's some stuff that's like un, underneath some of it. It's not exactly relevant, but it, it appeals to people who think they need certain things. Right. And I see that occurring pretty frequently. And I think one of the things that might work to, to my detriment is that once I like scrape past a certain layer, certain number of layers and go, oh, this product is cool because people will buy it. Not because there is a, uh, not because the, the, the existence of the product will update people's doctrine and create new possibilities for the user or that, uh, it solves a problem that they that you know existing hardware has been failing them on. If if it doesn't meet those criteria and it's just oh this is cool, people will believe that it's useful when they don't actually have a genuine use for it. I can't bring myself to make it, but I know yeah. that there's like you know seven or eight figures of, in in sales yeah. volume on stuff that like people will snap up because it's cool. And everything can however, CAA. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. I mean, I don't I don't think that there's necessarily anything wrong with making something that's cool, but a lot of the other the flip side of that is kind of the integrity side of it of you know if it's cool and it's quality and it's functional, you know, even if it might not necessarily solve a new problem, you know, I don't have I don't have an issue with somebody, you know making a, a cool AR machined out skeletonized pistol grip because it looks cool and people want to buy it. And, you know, as well, long plus five as- Plus dexterity too. Well, hey, listen, <laughs> you gotta have it. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that 
if uh, it kind of comes down to is the is a company deceiving somebody and saying yes you know anything beyond it being cool you know if if it's a, a piece of garbage which man uh, there's plenty of that in the industry um you know that, that's certainly where where i started having problems with things that are cool you know it kind of gets a pass but it also has an asterisk next to it on you know it is the <laughs> is the company being straightforward with uh with yes. the market about it that's that's exactly for me i'm the same as john i won't personally do anything like uh uh there's, there's a lot of stuff that people have asked us for um that i know could make a lot of money that i just i won't do it unless uh like say take five seven platforms for example like I, I won't do it until i know there's a an available round that is out of that short of a barrel will su successfully put down the bad dudes as fast as as fast as nine will uh i won't do that until i know however i like like you just said i'm okay with people doing it as long as it's not deceptive as long deceitful as long as it's not uh, deceptive in any way um, if people are upfront and not trying to say, well, the speed holes make it go faster or whatever else, like whatever marketing bullshit that they use, like as long as they're not lying to people or trying to make it like it is beneficial in some way that it's not, and it's practical when it's not, that's, I'm okay with that. If I'm, I'm not okay with doing it myself, I don't want to do it myself, but, uh, if other people want to do that and, it's it's an honest uh, transaction between them and the customer. That's fine, but you know I, I'm finding parallels with this discussion and writing, writing articles. I'm also seeing a parallel with this with having been the Darcy Direct Action Resource Center so many times and thinking of tactics people think of on the fly. The good idea, idea fairy comes up, and it's interesting just to to see some parallels here with some of these concepts. You're going to say something, yeah, John. I mean, there, there's, there's a, there's a, a whole business model of giving people who don't have a good reason for wanting something exactly what they want. Right. That's a whole product space. Um, <laughs> and, and you could, you know, there's a ton of really high quality products in that space also. And you, but when you get, when you start getting really serious about product design, not just like, um, is there demand for X? Yes. Let's fill the demand for X in the highest quality possible way. Sure. There's, there's nothing wrong with that, but I think it's important to examine, like if, if you're, if you're going to do, actual innovation i think that starts with examining the demand right is the demand the result of bad doctrine or the absence of a best practice right if so the product that needs to go into that space is education more than than a a physical product is is doctrine or best practice being held back by the lack of available hardware? Then you can create a piece of hardware that allows for the best practice to advance. And when you're creating hardware that 
allows for best practices to advance or emerge or develop, that's what I think of as innovation. Agree. Andrew. We <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I assume kind of on, on John's point, you know, somewhere in, in the early 1900s, there was some guy and he he was just breeding the best horses, right? And like all he knew was to like, there is so many people want horses. And then Henry Ford came along, right? And was just like, he looked beyond that and they, they just need to get from one place to another. They don't want better horses. And um, I'm sure that gets rolled up into a quote somewhere. Um, but um you know, I think. That, oh yeah, Henry Ford said, "If I asked people what they wanted, they'd ask for a faster horse." Right. So, you know that that's the kind of thing that's always driven me a bit is is when you you get ideas or you see people using products is you know what is that um, actual need? Um, everybody has their best example. Uh, you know, Blockbuster. You know, being followed by Netflix. People wanted to watch movies. They didn't want to return videos. They didn't want a DVD. They didn't want a DVD in their house. You know, they just wanted to see that that particular movie and so you know i think anytime you can kind of scroll back to that because i think oftentimes especially for me where a lot of the ideas come from external external sources you know i'm looking at these these constant ideas of faster horses and trying to look past that and see you know what it is that that really needs to get fixed or what that product really is um so that's always that's that's tricky though i think that takes a lot of practice and a lot of um trial and error So you found, you have this idea, it's feasible, this might work. What's your process for refining it to be the final product? Yeah, like taking it through that first functional, I'll, I'll go, but I'd uh, love to hear what other people have to say. Um, yeah, it, it to me is, you know, that the, the roughest of prototypes that, the you know, and then getting it immersed in the most, you know, um, the best simulation of an environment as you can, if not the real environment and, and learning from that, um, kind of always having an eye. I think, you know, the good, good designers are kind of always having the back of their head, they're designed for manufacturing. Like, am I going to, is this actually moldable? Is this actually machinable? If it is, what is it going to cost? And so they're kind of always keeping that in the back of their mind, but, and I don't know if I do that enough, but but it's always kind of what's in, you know important to me is to just get that function and then start building in the manufacturing and you know look start looking at the cost of goods and you know if you look at like medical device design there's a lot of what they call design reviews and so you're going through these different phases and each one um, is where you've you know you've established yeah this is going to meet the user need and then yeah this is the specification and this is the business plan and the business model and everybody sort of sees it as these checklists but it's, it's actually these are all opportunities to, to kill the product. Um, and I think, you know, I think people don't, you can, I guess you can see either way, but um, I think there, there is a certain rigor that you need to that, to the get through uh, to the next step or um, um, kill it before it um, turns into a product that doesn't hit the mark or you can't make money on it. Cause you can't your dealer network, it, you know, or your dealer um, business model doesn't work. So I think that's pretty important. Yeah, figuring out what the process is going to be for this product is super critical, right? Like you've got your core competencies and then you've also got, uh, uh, um, you know, you've got the, the your current selection of vendors, your current selection of core competencies. You have established pathways for getting things made. And they're also, you know, as a, as a product developer, you've got ideas for where else you want to go, right? Like 
you know, as soon as I get the opportunity to do something like X, Y, Z, we're going to take it. You know, when we can get into a new material, like something or other, or a new process, we're looking for, you know, is this product going to be our opportunity to get into something else? Right. And Mm -hmm. looking at the array of options in front of you, you figure out, okay, this is a pretty cool solution. Is it possible to make this solution? You know, uh, is, is the, uh, MSRP and the value to the consumer, are those things going to match after all of this, right? Can we produce, like, you can make whatever you want, right? We could have, you know, like uh, uh, laser-centered titanium, whatever the fuck, you know, bespoke everything, except for, you know, certain stuff, it's just going to cost, you know, a $10 thing is going to cost $75. You can't do that you know that's a a feasibility issue so you have to figure out what process you're going to use to make the thing is it going to be a process that you have established is it going to be a process that you are willing to spend a little money to explore as an excuse to get into this new medium um and then you look at it and say okay well what are the limitations of this process or what opportunities does the new process give us in terms of design and those limitations or opportunities are going to dictate features about the product that maybe you weren't thinking of in the original solution. And sometimes that's an opportunity to say, okay, well, this new process is going to cost a little bit more than what the market typically pays for this particular kind of product. However, it gives us the opportunity to pack, you know, 15 times more value into this unit than it would be if we had, you know, a machine it or injection molded or, or whatever it is, at which point it starts to become more feasible. But then you have to factor in the cost of educating. And then you also have to look at the product product market fit and realize, okay, you know, we, we, we operate in an industry that makes a lot of the same things over and over and over again with incremental um, improvements. And we're also dealing with stuff where people don't necessarily uh, they they bias towards um, law like long term reliability. You know, Glock is always going to win certain things because they've been making the same reliable pistol for our entire lives. Right? Um, it's hard to you. It's hard to be a newcomer in an environment with established stuff like that, and and the customer base also looks at that kind of long-term history as a benchmark and it's hard to move them off of that base right so there's a lot of things to 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 take into consideration here when you're developing a product and developing the feasibility of it right because there are tons of opportunities for innovation in this space but where a lot of these companies fall flat i think is in some cases being too early um we are from our vantage point as product designers we are taking extreme long distance shots on moving targets right we are starting a project that we expect to be finished in 12 to 18 months and we see where the market is now but we're trying to get that bullet to hit the market at 1500 yards away and it's hard to tell exactly how fast it's moving. And it's typically moving a little bit slower 
than you want. So that that target's going to see the the bullet trail cross right in front of them as that thing comes tumbling past them. And it's easy to wind up in that situation pretty consistently, especially since um, big new major innovations in our space often get a side eye because the, you know, because of the nature of the stuff that we're making, you know, life or death has to work all the time, hundred percent of the time reliability. It's hard to like, you can't ask customers to take a chance, right? We're not asking them to try a new toothpaste here. Right. Well, how we're, long did it take for the striker control device to come out and how long were people testing it and how many people were testing it and who was testing it? That went through some major and rigors. St- and, and, and it's still a, a hotly debated. Per, mm. Given how many Glocks exist, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the potential market for that product is every uh, uh, Glock nine millimeter, 40 caliber pistol in existence. And the penetration into that market is probably a fraction of a percent, even as popular as it is in our circles. Right. And that's the kind of like, long period of adoption that we're that we're talking about here yeah the the whole the way it's always been done reigns supreme a lot um, <laughs> in this industry you know yes. and it's definitely something for us you know speak to a lot of what you said definitely applies so i mean we make everything you know from injection molded parts to machine parts to sewn goods to a wide range and so the whole choosing how it's going to be manufactured is definitely huge and there's sometimes you'll get into it and you'll you'll drop your part one way in cad and you'll be like okay i plan on make you know i plan on machining this and you get further into it, you're like oh well, but we could probably injection mold this out of polymer and it'll be, you know, have these different attributes. Well, it's like, okay, well now if I'm designing for injection molding, I want to change the way I'm making this. Or if I'm designing for MIM, if I'm designing for, you know, everything has their own little things. I think a lot of people outside the manufacturing space don't understand like how specific you design something to the process that's happening. Um, I know when I first started, you know, out of college, I was sitting there and I was uh, working for um, this, the oil field company and uh, it was all machines, uh, all machine tools things. So, you know, um, large machine shop. And I was like, I drew something up. I was like, okay, well, won't we make this? And he's like, well, so you have tools that have like radii and things and like, you can't make go into this corner because the tools too, you know, that corner is too small. And you just see a really simple thing starting out, but a lot of people outside the space just don't understand that like, that's how manufacturing works and just how specific to the process it is. Um, I drew it in CAD. Why can't I make it? Yeah, exactly. And and that's because, honestly the because huge... it'll never demold. That's why. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and that's a huge part. thing for for additive too. Is uh, and that's I have you know a few classes and things specifically to additive. Um, is that like people are like, oh, it's three D printing. Like you know, it just appears. And it's like, yeah, no. There's there's a lot that goes into that. And the other thing I always find interesting is like in the three D printed firearms community, uh, there's so many people who do these wild things that have no. Um, no background in engineering. So they're willing to just try all kinds of things and just like see what happens. But it's always interesting when, when I go look at their the designs and like, man, if you just added like a, a 45 degree chamfer here, like it wouldn't print a support here. And like, it would make this part so much easier to print and just little things that you just learn, you know, through experience, but the whole designing for the process is just so huge. For sure. Yeah. I've got an interesting question, hopefully for the, for the panel. Um, it's something I really struggled with. And that's, um, you know, when you are brought an idea um, and it's a good one, I think you can get anything from someone who just, you know, at the cocktail party, just offhandedly mentioned something that, that really resonates with you all the way to someone who 
shows up with a patent application, um, a prototype and a manufacturing partner, who knows what else. And, you know, what I've always struggled with is, you know, what's the right level of partnership and compensation that goes along with that? Because, you know, it might be that you own a bottle of wine in their mind, or it might be that it's perpetual royalties worldwide um, or or more. And i um, kind of curious how the, how the other panelists deal with that. I well, think that's also uh, very hard. <laughs> <laughs> we've done a, we've done a couple of those. We did that with the um, arc switches for the uh, Surefire and Streamlight uh, TLR1 and X300. And we did that with the Enigma as well. Um, so there's, some of it depends on who's incurring the costs and, and the degree to which the product is already developed, right? So mm. um, in the case of the um, light switches, uh, Steve Fisher brought that idea to us and we knew um, off the bat that, you know, Bilster was going to pay for the injection mold and we were going to pay for the R&D and we were going to pay to market the product and we we're going to pay to fulfill it to the customers and we were going to pay for all the parts, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, we stack up like, you know, is whatever the balance of cost expenditure is, is, you know, obviously where the um, uh, bulk of the funds will arrive. Um, now, obviously that's a really good idea. And Steve brings his own, brand to the table and he's also capable of you know promoting and marketing the thing so obviously his percentage reflects that as well right um uh jules of runcible works was a really good friend of mine uh for a long time and i saw that he was making his yp holsters each one was you know handmade custom bespoke i never saw two of them that were the same because he every time he made one he had new ideas and new processes and new things to try out and they were constantly changing and you know they were hard to get a hold of and i and at the time you know the the nature of our business was changing and i was looking for products that we could bring into our space that had expanded manufacturing capabilities. Like we're sewing stuff, we're doing really cool stuff now. Let's get this, let's get something going on. I said, like, what would it take to um, uh, take this concept and turn it into something that could be produced at scale, right? Because scaling was the problem, right? This can't be done by hand. This can't be bespoke. This can't be custom. How do we provide all the advantages that these, um, bespoke custom attributes uh, provided to the customer, but at a mass produced scale. And, you know, Jules showed up with a patent on his original product, right? And uh, he was heavily involved in the, you know, prototyping phase and exchanging ideas back and forth. And ultimately that wound up as a, you know, especially with Sarah's input, a, a product that was substantially differentiated from the, original patented device by enough of a degree that we applied for a whole new patent. Mm. Right. So not only does he, does he get a royalty on the product, but his name's also on the new patent, which is a non-zero value to him over the long term of, you know, whoever knows how this goes. And so he gets a, a perpetual royalty based on his involvement in, in the patent. So, you know, a lot of it is like what seems fair, 
you know, uh, I try to put myself in the position of if I brought an idea to someone that was at this level of maturity or this level of development and, you know, I contributed the, the, the spark of the idea and, you know, what would I think would be fair uh, compensation for that? Or if I brought a patent in R and D and et cetera, et cetera, you know, like I'd want to see more than that, you know, or is it a license for two years or does the license for one year or what have you, or like when this is over, can I manufacture it myself? You know, there's a whole bunch of different ways to, to negotiate that. I haven't seen Jules in years. Hopefully he's still alive. He's doing, oh, he's doing great. He's, he's still kicking down people's doors. I thought he retired. No, he's not. He's not retired. He just went in a different direction. Different direction. Cool. Come on, guys. Anything? I mean, I haven't really dealt with it specifically. Uh, I mean, I'm kind of starting to, but ultimately, I think it's just going to be a case by case basis. Yeah, like, um, like with know, my ideas. Yeah, Mill- it's like landfair stocks. Sorry, zero dollars. Uh, no, I mean it. You know, John pretty much nailed it and had a way more comprehensive and uh, hands-on answer than I could ever have. But um, yeah, I mean figuring out what that person is actually bringing to the table versus what you're bringing to the table. Um, you know, how much involvement they're going to have versus how much involvement you're going to have. And, you know, in the couple instances that I have and, you know, and currently kind of working on with that sort of thing, I mean, just kind of open communication with the people to figure out what works for everybody. And, and I mean, I, I, at least in my very limited experience with it, it has not been overly difficult to you know, figure out terms that are good for everybody. But, you know, like yeah, I said, and make sure you get a fucking contract. Basis. <laughs> yeah. 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 Whatever those, ter- whatever those terms are, don't do it on a fucking handshake ever, ever. What about it? I don't, I don't care if it's your, I don't care if it's your brother. You can do it on a napkin as long as, long as, get it on a as long as that, as long as that napkin is is signed and like it's it's a contract, you can do it on a napkin. But uh, it's got to be right. Got to be Frame on it. paper, even though uh, if you if you do it on a napkin, take a picture on your phone and send it to your lawyer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, I I do think that the best thing, like both you guys just said, is looking at try to look at it from their perspective and try to use try to do it as fair as possible. Um, and then, you know, maybe there'll be a little bit of negotiation. Um, we just went through that with, with snake staff, um, where we have our guy running it, um, didn't really have any, uh, anything to do with the development or the invention, but, um, we wanted to incentivize him running the company. And so gave him a much more significant percentage than he had, uh, just just to incentivize um successful scaling and and then running of of the company setting everything up and it's i think it's more than worth i would i would say uh maybe bias your try and bias yourself i think everyone is naturally biased to especially for their own inventions people are naturally biased towards grasping as much as possible and i understand that completely having put an insane amount of time into my work. But um, 
I'd, I'd, I would suggest anyone who does want to do this to just realize that if, uh, if, if you, if you own a hundred percent of products that don't get off the ground or products such as, uh, flux products that <laughs> barely, uh, have any production or anything, like it's just not, it's not worth anything. But if you can, if you sell a le- if you own a lesser percentage of something that blows up and goes huge, then that's, that's way more valuable. Um, so I think being as fair as possible and being willing to, uh, give percentages to people to incentivize them to kick ass. I think that's definitely, uh, definitely worthwhile. Luckily for most of our stuff, it's been super, I've been extremely lucky. Um, having my business partner, we just, for whatever reasons, we're extremely similar and yet extremely different. Um, and we work extremely well together. And because of that, we just split things 50 50 uh we've done it since day one and even though that's like you should never split your business at least deciding power 50 50 uh we didn't go to business school so we didn't know that and uh but i will say in terms of uh profits like even even though on certain projects like certain ideas were initially his uh and certain ideas were initially mine um and one of us puts tons of effort into certain aspects of the business or, or development. It ends up, I think the 50, 50 has worked out quite well for us. Um, and Fisher is, uh, getting his, uh, his pay pretty soon here. <laughs> I, uh, I think we, we thought about, uh, consulting, but then we're like, Oh yeah, wait, didn't he say like, yeah, you, you can't ever do that because, uh, there, there can't be any sort of incentive in terms of people who are, uh, yes, yeah, exactly. If, if we ever want COT, triple C or COTC, um, recommendation, we can't, we can't be paying off the members. Um, it just doesn't work, but, uh, yeah, I would, I would just suggest be as fair as you can. You know, uh, with yeah. all the advice oh, that everyone say. said, this is providing good long-term advice too. This isn't the short-term, okay, we're going to get rich quick. No, this is long-term. Mm-hmm. This is strategy. Yeah, play the long yeah, game for gonna, sure. Yeah. I was going to say that, um, you know, that uh, the uh, marshmallow study, uh, they get a bunch of little kids yes. oh. and they, they put them in a room and they put one, one marshmallow in front of them. And they say, if you can, you know, wait 10 minutes, we'll give you a second one. Um, the, the collaboration and licensing opportunity is an opportunity for people to be two marshmallow kids yeah. where you might get, you might get five or 10 or, you know, some, you know, range of single digit to 10% royalty or license fee on, on an idea. But the amount that you learn from doing that with one or two companies, um, what you learn as an idea haver and someone who, um, gets in the habit of bringing other people ideas. You set up a game where you are playing five or six games for, you know, five to 10% across a very long time. And if two out of every five inventions are a hit, you're making a living off those royalties, yeah. depending on, on how big they hit, because, you know, 
if you're getting uh, 5% on a product that nets a million bucks in a year, and you do that for a couple of years, that's a whole second small income. You do that with two companies, you're making six figures, right? Um, or you may, or you do that twice with one company and you're making six figures, right? So a lot of people are thinking, man, you you really only going to pay me X percent on, on, on this idea. It's like, well, it's a great idea, but we, we take all the risk. Yeah. We finance the entire project and, but the value that we bring you is the idea exists. You get credit for it and, uh, you get paid on it. Um, you know, it's the toll for driving on this highway to, to, to a certain degree. Um, but if this works out, we now have a relationship where the next time that an idea comes along, we can drop that into the existing marketplace, right? Especially if these things have, if these products have synergy or part of an ecosystem, we develop iterations of this idea, uh, that you continue to get paid on. And it's just a matter of waiting and saving and you can definitely become, uh, pretty well off if you play the uh, product licensing royalty game correctly enough over a long enough period of time. So um, there is value in providing that on-ramp to someone who's, who's coming along with an idea, especially if they're not used to what people get paid for ideas. You know, and so uh, people don't want to be let down, right? It's their idea. It's their baby. And they're like, well, what, what do you mean? I only get paid X on it. But once you um, paint them the picture of how this typically goes and you also start telling, like start itemizing the projected cost for the product, yeah, they are definitely much more likely to understand the value proposition of the relationship. There's a, I, there's, I have a question uh, for you. Uh, how do you tell people no nicely? Because <laughs> um, Matt, Matt will attest that I haven't figured that out yet. Oh, no. Yours was great. <laughs> Your explanation made so much sense. I, I, I told everyone, yeah, I, I presented something and you presented a better idea. I'm like, holy crap, this is awesome. And you did this in seconds. <laughs> Yeah, I'm I'm always struggling with that because I because I know what went into their thinking and you know that I can really empathize with those those people and and especially if they've kind of had it in their you know, knocking around in their head for a long time you know just telling them telling them why it won't work feels like telling them they're dumb uh, in my I don't think that's true but that's kind of where my head goes yeah. and then I get all kind of worried about it so um, yeah I I don't know the best way. Um, I think the hardest part that for me sometimes is when someone brings up an idea that we're already cooking on and then I have to, you know, be as, as careful as I can saying, Hey, you know, I, I think that's, that's great. In fact, that is something we're working on. And I'm not just saying that, um, just, just for real, real quick reference, um, kind of getting back to what you were talking about, John, on the, um, just licensing and, and royalties and all that. I, I threw a book in the comments. It's called one simple idea. Um, it's an interesting book. I, I actually liked it. it. It went through a lot of the nuts and bolts of bringing ideas to companies. 
um, and all the different things you can do to protect yourself uh, and all the, and some of the deals you can negotiate. So, you know, getting a provisional patent is pretty easy on something if that's uh, or even a design patent on something that's ornamental. Um, you can get that part going. You can go to um, you can go to the company and, and actually protect yourself, interestingly, by not only asking for, you know, negotiating a royalty deal where now you're you're kind of betting with them, but getting an advance on royalties if it's a good enough idea. And that way, if a company takes your idea, says, yes, we want a royalty on this, we're going to develop it, and then does nothing, you actually walked away with something out of the deal. Um, there's probably a lot more in the book, but I figured that might be useful for people if they do have things they want to uh, bring to companies. You, you do need to be careful with that is something that big corporations, especially do not i don't know how common it is but uh big corporations especially if they're working on something similar or if they want to steal your idea uh oftentimes they will set up a licensing agreement and it's, everything seems awesome it sounds great and then they don't make it yep. and, and instead they either they either kill that idea because it would compete with another product of theirs or yep. potentially they would uh develop their own version of it that wouldn't infringe on your patent or whatever so yep. there's is there is a lot of stuff to navigate with. I, I would recommend if anyone is interested in, in inventing, becoming a inventor or whatever, um, licensing stuff, just research it a lot. Um, and then like like these guys are saying, especially John was talking about, the uh, idea part is definitely very important. It's awesome. It's great. It's important, but it is far from the biggest cost in bringing something to market. Um, and I, I know I would have made a lot more money myself. I, I should have, I just, you know, it's hard when you don't know where to go, who to talk to whatever, but, uh, I, I would have made a lot more money had I licensed all my stuff instead of try to produce it myself, especially when I knew nothing about manufacturing yeah. or even, en or engineering. Like, uh, they've, I've laughed to myself when you guys are all talking and engineering for manufacturing, and that's incredibly important. Even if like you can, you can make one thing, it's, it's really easy to make one really awesome thing, but making that thing reproducible over and over with, you know, so that you have at least like 98% of your parts working with all the other parts and every time and a monkey can slap it together. That is very difficult and takes a lot of fine tuning and engineering, understanding tolerances um, that, <laughs> that I didn't understand designing my first products at all. I'd learned, I had to learn the hard way. Um, so I think, uh, if, if people are interested in founding their own company, it is, it is a cool experience. It's, uh, uh, horrible experience. It's a, it's a huge, it's all of you guys know exactly what I'm talking about. It's a, it's a massive undertaking. Uh, it's a, you are having a baby and you must guide that baby into growing into a weird entity of its own that will take massive amounts of your time and effort and pain and suffering. And uh, so if you want to do that, that's awesome. But just understand that, that that's why you have a uh, patent. That's why people who, you know, license their patents or just inventors who don't make their own stuff only earn five at a maximum, like 10% or something of an amazing idea just because that is, that's the easy part. <laughs> That's the easy part. Sure. Adam, were you going to say something? 
Yeah, I kind of wanted to address like a couple of questions and comments that had come up throughout the evening. Uh, like Sarah had mentioned in the uh, in the comments about you know taking ideas and and, and different things, and you know for me a lot of it, um, you know whether it has been other people asking for my input on some of their ideas or people giving me input on my product designs or ideas. Um, one thing that has served me pretty well, and it, this also kind of answers John in, in his question of like how to tell people no, um, is just being pretty open-minded about mm. everything that you hear because you might be pretty surprised on you know what somebody has to offer in, in terms of some of their input. And um, it, when I say be open-minded about it, you know, be fully receptive to what you're hearing, process it through and, you know, figure out why or why not it may or may not be a good idea. Um, and, you know, there's, there's a lot of questions or recommendations that I'll get where, you know, it will be more of an immediate, no, that won't work, but that's only because I've already gone through that with somebody else that's previously asked that, you know, if I'm hearing an idea for the first time, um, even no matter how obscure or ridiculous it sounds, I try to give it its fair shake just because I know that some of my, you know, <laughs> the, the first few times that I, you know, kind of presented the idea of the QDC, a lot of people were like, well, I, I don't know about that. And, um, so you don't want to ever like shoot down an idea without giving it its, its due diligence. So, you know, <laughs> being able to tell people no is easier when you've already thought through that. And, you know, if you haven't, then, you know, let them know, yeah, I'll give it some consideration and, you know, give them a reason why or why not after the fact. Yeah. Okay. I, I generally hit them, I, you know, my first reaction is to do you know, the kind of like, Socratic questioning. And I'm pretty sure that most people think I'm an asshole <laughs> for, for doing that because it, it comes off as like, what, what the hell you want to do that for? But like, that's a, but that's a genuine question. It's not, it's not a dismissal. It's like, why do you want to do this? And that I'm not, you know, it's hard. It's hard to ask someone that base level of a question without it sounding incredibly judgmental. What problem <laughs> like, are you solving? Or, yeah, that kind well, of, yeah. Like, yeah, that's, that's like, kind of what, what is it you think you're doing? Is, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, and being able to defend your ideas, sometimes like one of the first things, I mean, there's a reason it's part of a thesis, being able to defend it. Like, you know, whenever you're, the, that first, even if it's a small idea, just being able to say, even if it's just to say, I just think it's cool and want to make it because it's cool. Like, sure, if that's, I mean, that could be a valid, you know, response to whatever it may be. Right. The Socratic yeah, method has probably started more arguments than anything <laughs> in the world. What is on your face? Oh my God. It's impressive. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, I had a, a drawing teacher back in art school. He'd walk up to something that I was working on and he would ask me a question. He would make me justify every single line and mark that I put on the paper. Hmm. Like, what does this do? What does this describe? Does this do the thing that you want it to do? Are you just like touching the paper with the implement or are you crafting this drawing? And, oh, I hated him. I hated <laughs> him so much. Every, every day he'd walk into my studio and I'd be working on something. And he's like, why is this here? Why is that here? What does this do? How does this add to the thing? And I, I like, 
I got to the verge of hating him and hating drawing until I realized exactly what he was doing and started actually approaching the drawing as though someone was going to ask me why the fuck I made every single choice in the entire thing, at which point they all just got better. (laughs) You know, like that's, that was, uh, that was a, that was a big shift and sort of like getting into the discipline of like, why is, you know, like it's easy, you know, and I think, I think a lot of us can fall into the, you know, designing from intuition, right. Where you've kind of like made enough of a certain kind of thing that you can predict in your head, how, some kinds of designs are going to work out and, you know, it's going to have, you know, Oh, this part that I kind of put with everything. And, you know, uh, you can see the whole thing in your head before you make it, or you at least draw it. And you, you know, it's gonna, gonna work. And so you bias towards action. You get through that process really quickly. And then you realize there's a whole bunch of stuff that you baked into this first draft that you can't really justify. And then you have to, I mean, I find myself editing out more than adding features. Yeah. One because feature because feature creep is a yeah. a catastrophe, and it should be illegal. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but but also, once you start asking your questions, self questions of like, why is this actually like this? Um, yeah, and and what does it absolutely only have to be? you know, in the, in, you know, what, what happens when we really focus this product, like a laser beam, then you start editing out a lot. Yeah. Those elegant designs, you know, you've ever taken a first time you take apart a 1911 and you realize like how many things each thing is doing, or, you know, some of those things where it almost starts to blend into art. I've always kind of like appreciated that for sure yeah so an aspect of this also is those beta testers and having been the recipient of things before they're released it's a i would consider it and i steve fisher is going to laugh at me for saying this it's, it's an honor to get that kind of stuff and to get that kind of trust um to get early releases help from firearm companies from manufacturers from friends here um to get stuff at, to provide some input um for you guys, how do you go about selecting the people that are right for the beta test? You got to trust them. Yeah. That's, that's no, number away one, with it. really. <laughs> uh, the tr- trust is, trust is number one. Um, but, but I would say uh, the subject matter experts are going to be the best people you can have. So that means professionals. That means like in our, in our realm, that means shooters typically. Uh, but um, I mean, if you could have, for us, we certainly value, uh, we luckily, I, I would say trust because of trust, you have to have relationships with these people. Um, and so if you don't have relationships with these people, so for our first box, it was pretty difficult because we just had to test them ourselves and yeah. amongst other shooter friends just, and then that means you have to test them in every way you can think of every possible scenario and way more than if you had beta testers but uh i would say trust number one and then number two actually having those people have to have some sort of value add some sort of yeah. input so i think you'd, you'd be a great tester for all sorts of stuff 
well, I have a product just under the camera that I can't wait to be able to share. And it's, <laughs> it's from a friend of mine, but I, awesome. I'm not allowed to do, say anything or, so it's just going to be right here under the camera. <laughs> and I have it here just for this, for this episode. And it's packaging right here. <laughs> yes, John, it's yours. Oh, dude. Um, it's it somehow found its way to the uh, shooting illustrated homepage today. Really? So the cat oh. is on it on its way out of the bag. Um, was so that, that means I can just go or not? I'm off to the shooting what? illustrated website. I will be right back. Um, <laughs> so does that was, mean I can not, I can put it in the camera now? It was not intentional. Um, okay. But it's it's fine. It's not a big deal. The thing is taking longer to release than we expected. Um, well, here's one from Tom. So, uh, I was going to say, so different different um, beta testers are going to tell you different things, right? Um, first, the hardest part, the hardest thing about picking beta testers is picking people who are actually going to give you feedback yeah. because a lot of people go, thanks, this is cool, and then you never fucking hear from them again, yeah. um, even if they are you know, subject matter experts, right? So subject matter experts are going to tell you the degree uh, – to which the product meets or exceeds their uh, high performance standards as it stands right now, and whether or not it opens up new um, avenues for doctrine, right? Um, there are other people who are not subject matter experts who are going to, uh, you wanna select them as a reflection of your um, Okay, so you should be developing kind of like archetypal personas that describe different segments of your customer base, right? Yeah. We've got, you know, person X is, you know, this age, this gender, uh, and does the following activities, and customer Y is this, you know, and so on and so forth. And you're, you should have a couple different personas that, that, may, that uh, categorize or describe broad uh, segments of your typical customer base. And you should be sending these products to those people who might not yet be experts who will be able to tell you, you know, because we all design these things with our experience yeah. and our base of knowledge. And what's so obviousness isn't a, a, a component of the thing, you know, obviousness yeah. does not exist in the product. It exists in your experience and how that overlays on, onto the product. So if you're making something that's a little bit non-obvious, you need to give the product to people who don't share the expertise that you have Yes. to make sure that one, you get your instructions right Two, they don't break it in ways that you could have never imagined because you would, you know, it's like you're making wrenches and someone's like, well, they don't hammer nails very well. Right. And, and it would never occur to you to use this wrench as a hammer yet, you know, somehow yeah. half your customers, do, right. So you got to make sure that the product is getting into the hands of the people who will tell you how it will behave when it encounters these different uh, customer personas and then kind of strike the balance of like, okay, some people are going to have some issues with this product. None of our expert beta testers have these issues. And in fact, our expert beta testers don't have these issues and it increases their performance. So, the product is good. It, it goes where we want it to go. What do we need to do to take these 
customers, these various customer personas, and get them to walk a little bit faster so that when that bullet strikes at 1,500 yards, they're where we want them to be, right? And that sort of gets you in not, you know, uh, out of the discussion of whether or not you're going to make this product or bring it to market because you're already in the, in the beta testing, it gets into um, what you need to do to make the market ready for the product. Mm-hmm. And how far in advance do you need to start thinking about priming the market for the products that you're going to make? Right. Because if, yeah. because if you're on an innovation schedule and you've got, you know, three or four things that are lined up and you know, they're going to hit at 12 months and then 18 months and then 24 months, you need the market to be where you want it to be at those levels. And so as you're doing this product testing, getting it into the hands of the people who reflect kind of like uh, who, who might be in that demographic at the right time is almost in some cases more important than getting into the hands of subject matter experts, right? Subject matter experts are great for Hmm. earlier stages of development and getting you to think about things that you might not yet be thinking about or like, Hey, you know, here's some considerations here, how these things are are typically used. Um, Here's what already exists that you might not know about. Uh, But at the end of the day, once you've used your experience and intuition as a designer, you know that you're going to put something in their hand that works and is going to work the way they expect. And we also, I don't, I don't remember the last time that I was surprised that something broke, Hmm. right? Like, torture testing stuff it's like you kind of know what the best practices are it's like if you're not going out on some crazy limb you're not going to be like oh wow that broke and i didn't expect it to Hmm. right like when you're when you're just like the first time you've got the 3d print you can tell what's going to break and what's not going to break so the the final product in user testing almost never ever reveals that something breaks in a surprising way. So like, you don't need to torture test it to death. You need to make sure that it is meeting or exceeding the experts expected level of performance. And that it's comprehensible to people who are not experts. Yeah. That kind of reminds me of the discussion I had and I brought it up on this, on this, not this episode, but the podcast multiple times talking to Bill Blowers, trying to figure out, okay, what content are we going to put out? And if we're always striving to put out content up here, well, we're missing out all the people that aren't quite to that level. And we need to realize, okay, what are the people at this level thinking? What are they doing? We need to consider them. And that sounds exactly like what you're saying about uh, product development and that, that the products need to meet their needs and that they need to know how to use it. Yeah, I definitely think, yeah, as a designing to the lowest common denominator that will use your products, you know, to some extent, like understanding there are things that like not all your customers are engineers like yep. they're going to see things sometimes and they're going <laughs> to over torque things and they're going to you know do all kinds of things that you don't expect but knowing okay well this will be the failure mode if that happens etc um and also to speak to uh it was mentioned earlier and i, I uh, meant to comment on it the the whole um making something that the market may not be ready for yet. There are definitely products we've looked at of our own. We're like, oh, we could probably make this out of a different material or a different way or whatever. But we know that right now with the way the market is, like there is just not going to sell because the market just won't accept this no matter how much education we do or whatever power we have to do it. So it just gets shelved. And it's like, okay, well, at some point, most likely this will come back up as now it's viable. But, you know, there's definitely things that are shelved um, from just a purely market acceptance. We know that there's no way we will convince people at this point in time. Um, you know, 
I bet there's also an aspect of this where people aren't completely sure of what the product completely does. The fast optic mount specifically, I can imagine there's a segment that don't know that there are irons built into it. A huge segment. Yeah. 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 Plenty of people. Well, I guarantee you that I, I would be shocked if metal injection molding was not able to support optic mounts. Like that would be just an absolutely like it's yeah. a mature technology. They're making cars mm-hmm. out of that stuff. Mm-hmm. But the fact that certain companies in the firearm space have turned M into MIM into a dirty word means mm-hmm. that the advantages <laughs> provided by that process are going to be basically like heresy in the firearm mm-hmm. space forever, even though it's almost certainly stronger than aluminum, especially if you can get into injection molding like composites that are probably better mm-hmm. than aluminum. <laughs> Yep. Well, even in the standard injection molding market too, you know, I think the farms market has slowly yeah. started coming around to more polymers, but there's still a ton of things that we use every day that are made of aluminum that absolutely could be made of polymer, you know, with no detriment to performance, but just that are not, wouldn't be accepted. I mean, you know, AR lowers for a long time, you know, the polymer lowers were obviously very much frowned upon. There are a lot of bad polymer lowers out there, um, you know, until, uh, you know, guys like A-Arms came out around and were like, oh, you know, we're designing this to be an injection molded product. Like we're making decisions to make this this way, Um, you know. Well, they're attributing they're attributing or they're confusing uh, bad material and bad material use with bad design because a lot of the plastic (laughs) lowers don't necessarily. uh, Nobody's actually the engineer me wants to draw a free body diagram. If if somebody takes a plastic air lower and (laughs) you know they hand it to somebody and they actually you mount the gun aggressively and look what happens to it and then look at how a plastic lower is built all the ones that break are made a certain way all the ones that hold up are made a different way intentional or not but when you see where the differences are it becomes pretty obvious <laughs> yeah Absolutely. you can't just you can't just copy a, a design for a metal yeah. like, and and then just expect it to to work great with uh, or, or whatever it is. It doesn't matter if it's extruded, machined, or, or but certain materials, and then and then just expect it to work. I mean, the AR is a per, is the perfect example with the the buffer tube, um, the, the extension that where you mount the buffer tube to, and like you say, there there are. I mean, there's 3D printed AR lowers that I mean, I would say the vast majority of them are, are trash, but there are ones that are actually incredibly durable and, and well-designed even with shit material um, because they've designed it with the manufacturing method in mind. They've done quite a good job of making them durable. And uh, I don't know, we, we're going through this right now with tons of people are talking about how the strike chassis, which is aluminum 6061 uh, is superior because it's aluminum to, to the Raider. Yeah, it is. It is strike. It, Red anodized. Nah. Every single person I know who has one has had massive failures with them because the design is just not good. And I, I would love for someone to uh, torture test a Raider, a polymer Raider alongside the aluminum strike chassis because the design, because of the design are well, and we do have a special polymer, uh, Ours is incredibly more robust than than their. Yes, it's aluminum, but the, the way it's designed, it's it's not strong at all. So the, the it's the materials can be absolute like with injection molding, whether it's metal or polymer, can be incredibly 
robust and and good. I, I think that MIM will slow. It is slowly taking more taking over and over and over. If you look at the P320, the all the internal components, uh, there's I think the slide catch lever is stamped, and then the FCU itself is stamped, and then everything else is MIM. Everything is MIM on that thing. Uh, and I've been blown away at the durability, blown away at the durability. It's, I mean, we tortured, I don't know how many tens of thousands of rounds we've put through our, our systems. Um, but I've never had uh, parts breakage. Um, I've never had any problems. And then there, there's plenty of other guns as well. If, if you really pay attention, if you know what MIM looks like, you'll start to see that like, oh, Glock parts, like, there's Glock parts that are MIM. There, there's tons and tons of parts that are MIM. And I think based on molecular structure, I think there's a strong chance that MIM might be one of the strongest ways of making parts, not just most efficient, but I don't know. We're, we're looking into it right now for a lot of our parts. Uh, Cause it's, it can, I think it can be a very good way of making parts, but certainly injection molding for polymer. It's very, very good. It's very, very good. Hey, Adam, you have to take off. Uh, I got a couple more minutes. I okay. could probably go another 15 just because it's a good conversation. Yeah. It was fun, but, uh, but I appreciate it. Um, now it is interesting that the conversation has circled back a couple of times to having things designed along with the manufacturing process in mind, along with the pros and cons of said manufacturing process um, and just the advancements in technology. You know, you take a look at, you know, heck a, five or 10 years ago, you know, 3D printing, you know, what, what it initially was, which is now kind of your standard, like $200 desktop 3D printer versus a $500,000 additive manufacturing machine that can, you know, produce geometries that you cannot achieve through any other reasonable manufacturing methods. Um, but again, you know, some people might look at additive negatively just because they think of one thing, but they don't necessarily think like, well, there's been massive advancements in the materials being used in the way that the machinery is actually implemented. And again, kind of going back to designing specifically around that process. So whether it's additive manufacturing or MIM or injection molding plastic or machining aluminum, um, you know, everything comes down to designing around the manufacturing method and the materials being used. Yeah. I mean, some of the additive manufacturing has been unbelievable and it's nearly indistinguishable from certain kinds of injection molding. So um, we had gone from using an off the shelf component to a in-house design component on the Enigma. And because like the the tiny buckles that we were yeah. able to get for the leg links, JF. The, uh, yeah. So so the the, the the original ones, like the 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 the, the tiny buckles were just like anything injection molded that small and that kind of footprint wasn't really strong enough for for what we needed. And there and especially at that tiny size, you get like even a a little bit of mold flashing on one of these like snap together clips created a circumstance where some of them just like, you would never discover this until you sold 10,000 of them or until you had 10,000 of them in your hand. Cause when you get 500, they're all pretty much the same, but, and it might, you know, 
it might be like, you know, two in every thousand have an issue, but those two aren't going to be in the first 500 you get. They, there might be one in the, you know, somewhere around 650 and another one around 800 and you would have to buy a whole, you know, thousands to, to see it. Right. So it wasn't until we were doing it at scale that we started to pick out little things that we weren't totally satisfied with, with these little clips, but we weren't yet ready to injection mold a whole new clip. Like we needed this improvement on hand in circulation and we were able to get them all printed in batches of thousands in production huge printing. multi-jet fusion. Yeah, production multi-jet fusion printing. And they felt incredible. They snapped great. They were really reliable, incredibly consistent. They were less than a dollar a piece out the door, you know, when it was all said and done. And that allowed us to make a significant product improvement and launch a new product and have these things on the market for a long enough period of time that we could do everything we needed to get it to the state of readiness and injection molding because, you know, making tiny iterations in the 3d print is easy when you need to make really small changes in a tiny injection mold. That is an arduous and and lengthy process. So, so getting the mold made took forever because you're like tweaking this little plastic fit interface over and over and over and over again to get it just right. I'm sure Andrew knows exactly what I'm talking about to get things to stay together. Exactly. Yeah, exactly the way you want them to. And, um, but MJF is, is fantastic. Um, yeah. Now the thing is, you know, I'm, I'm sure this is another thing that Andrew deals with is um, people have a certain kind of memory. We were talking about, you know, whether or not MIM was going to be heresy or what, you know, uh, customer quality perception is like. Every cheap piece of crap you have ever handled in your life has been injection molded plastic. Think about that. Like every uh, automotive component that you've taken apart that's disintegrated in your hand, every little clip that's broken, every little piece of, you know, something that like breaks and doesn't have a very long lifespan, a kitchen utensil that falls apart, a knob on something that breaks off, the remote that cracks, or you take the, you take your uh, car key fob apart to change the battery and something tiny and it breaks. Every cheap piece of crap you've ever handled has been injection molded. And the enormous hurdle for us lately, the thing that Matt was referring to, um, is that we the, the design parameters for the new product meant that it could not be sheet formed anymore. Like the new product has to be injection molded. And how do we take something, take a process that we know generates superior products uh, with greater longevity and um, is way stronger, way more durable. And how do we add to that the subconscious perception of quality? Because Mm. think about how many things that you just 
pickup and without even being able to yet uh, quantify it, you, the, the instant you touch it, you know it's a piece of shit, right? How many, how many, like, how many products, like, feel like they came out of a toy store, right? Like you, 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 you handle it and you're like, this is a piece of crap, and it, that's your emotional impression of the thing before you even get to the point where you can list off why you don't like it, right? Um, the single biggest challenge for us, more than getting the molds made, more than prototyping the part, was picking a, a texture and a blend of plastic that would not feel cheap and crappy to the end user. Like that was like the leap. And I think that's, I suspect that that's one of the reasons that the number of things that we make out of aluminum that could be polymer aren't polymer mm -hmm. is because it's hard to take that leap inside the mind of the customer and put a piece of polymer in their hand that feels as quality as aluminum does. Yeah, definitely. And I want to also, and to clarify my earlier statement, um, we absolutely will and do pursue, obviously, you know, any material that will have a significant advantage over our current product. Like we're obviously going to pursue that. We will do what we have to for the cus on, you know, the customer perception side, for sure. You know, not, not to say that, Oh, like, you know, it's purely, Oh, if the customer is not going to accept it. We just won't make it like, no, I mean, we'll, <laughs> you know, absolutely. We'll, we push the boundaries there, you know, for sure. And I think that we've done that and we'll continue to, um, but hey, just hey, that it is a challenge for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, so John, did you say it's okay that I, Put it on the camera. Uh, that's the only thing that's on my mind right now. I, I mean, I can't reach. I can't reach through the screen and stuff. Well, no. If you don't want me to, I'm not going to. Uh, it's, if, if 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 it's not meant to happen, Sarah will run downstairs and stop me from saying yes. So let's give it a couple minutes. Okay. And we'll also test whether or not she's actually paying attention. Oh, I'm sure she is. <laughs> I wish my wife yeah. was like that. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll say she responded already. <laughs> Sarah, is it. it okay? Yeah. Let's see it. <laughs> All right, folks, you saw it here second. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <in secondary>. uh, <laughs> I don't want to upset her. I don't want to upset her. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I'll, I'll buy you a third. Or something. Yeah. Oh, third. Yeah. Okay. Let's, uh, let's see it. Okay. So first Why we're going to, we're going to start. Ooh. Mm -hmm. And then, <laughs> so interesting, if you'll notice, there are ribs on it. It's for your pleasure. Yeah, <laughs> literally, literally, literally. But it also seems to retain the gun a little better. It seems to add some stability up against my, myself and my clothing. That being said, also, it takes just a little bit more pressure or a little bit more finagling to remove the holster, which is not a bad thing. And to put it on just because it seems to, if, if you wear super tight pants, it's going to be a bad thing. No. John, is this yeah. the molded product you were just talking about? Yeah. Nice. Yeah. It's nice. been, uh, it's been a big project. Um, so one of the reasons super that it stable. better is because um, <clears throat> when, when the, 
the reason that holsters look like guns is because historically you start making a holster with a sheet of material, whether it's leather or, or, or Kydex. Yep. And the outside is going to look like the inside because you have to mold the sheet around the positive form. Um, fundamentally, there's no reason that inside the waistband holsters should be gun shaped. They should be people shaped. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but that requires a process that allows the inside of the holster to be dramatically different from the outside of the holster. And for that, we had to go to an injection molding, which allowed us to create an outside of the holster that's body friendly while maintaining a um, interior surface that makes the same or better contact with the forms of the gun and the light than the previous outgoing model did. And I think we tried, we sampled this with 10 different plastic blends to pick uh-huh. out the one we, 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 we actually wanted. And I, I think we arrived at something that's fairly similar to what um, pistol frames and rifle stocks and grips are already being made out of, mostly because it pushes that button where um, of the quality experiences that people have had with plastic products in this market space, they're going to be looking at high quality rifle stocks, high quality polymer pistols, high quality polymer magazines, and they're going to have an unconscious association with quality when they experience that. And what we didn't want to do was give it accidentally a kind of like Uncle Mike's or, or, or Black Hawk or, or alien gear kind of plastic yeah. feel because that's going to just turn people off from the thing entirely. What are you, what are you trying was... to say about Blackhawk and Alien? <laughs> what about Phobos? Well, Come on. <laughs> this is my favorite <laughs> or, 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 or Phobos. I, yeah. I think I, yeah, I saw um, a data sheet somewhere that said the, like the, uh, the hardness and durability of, of the plastic in certain Phobos holsters was just like the next step up from um, paraffin candle wax. <laughs> <laughs> Are you telling the public what that material is? Like, could you tell, would you mind telling us if, if, you, if you don't want to, that's fine. I've, I understand. I've got, I've got the specific formulation written down somewhere, but it's glass reinforced. Now. Yeah. 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 That's awesome. I'm just a materials nerd. Oh, no, no problem, Sarah. <laughs> no problem. We, uh, we can't say what our Raiders from, made from, but, uh, and that's more, that's less, that's more for, uh, other yeah, <laughs> love you too, Sarah. Uh, that's more because the manu the manufacturer is is uh, anti two A, so <laughs> that's why. <laughs> but uh, but that's awesome. I mean, I do think you know if you if you seek and find special super material like materials that are extremely good for this application, you know, I think you know that there's effort involved in that, and you don't necessarily need to tell all your competitors that either um but that's awesome that's that's cool i think injection molding is uh it took me a while to uh, get there um we started with the mj uh for people other people who are interested in making things mjf is uh the easy step or like it's it's an absolute game changer in terms of people who want to um get into this space with uh, little, uh, 
little investment. Um, if that makes any sense with our, our first original products for the Glock, we're all using MJF is when it was brand new. It was, it was a baby technology. Uh, never, no one really ever heard of it. Um, everyone thought we were injection molding because they couldn't tell the difference. Um, but, uh, for a while we were the largest user, according to HP, uh, we were the largest users of MJF, um, flux defense. And it is incredible. Just be aware. There are certain, um, that you need, if you're going to go into production, you need very good manufacturers. Very, uh, there's, there's only really a couple people I would trust that, that are doing this. Um, be, so be extremely careful and don't just verify your design with, uh, a couple, you know, sample batches and then order thousands. And then those thousands end up being super brittle or, or have whatever other problems. Um, so just you be careful, uh, feel free to contact me. I'll send you to our manufacturer if you want. He's super awesome dude out of Texas. Uh, honestly, the best vendor we've ever worked with of any, any sort. So, but Robert. yeah, research him. Yeah. 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 Oh man. I love that, man. I love that. I arm He's wrestled him. I arm wrestled him in like, uh, what was a super high end, like the most expensive restaurant I've ever been in <laughs> two weeks ago, what shot, whatever that was one week ago. I don't even remember anymore. He's, he's, he's like trying to get me to arm wrestle him. This dude went to Saddam Hussein's trial. He, he's a super awesome dude. And, uh, <laughs> oh man. Uh, but yeah, if you want MJF, Talk to Nico, uh, N-E-C-O of Texas. Um, I highly recommend valid. It's also a really good way to validate ideas before you go to injection molding. Um, a lot of ideas should just always be MJF maybe like that. Uh, that Yeah, your little laid clips on the Enigma. I saw those are those are perfect candidates for MJF. But uh, um, highly recommend investigating that if you guys want to test out an idea um it's it's incredibly useful it's production 3d printing instead of printing line by line like little line by line like in what you hear when you when you hear 3d printing you're thinking of fdm which is uh fused depo deposition uh what is it i don't remember material but you're doing line by line so it's very slow and that's great for prototyping in your own. I have one right here that I built and that's how I designed and developed like the original stuff. But um, what FDM is, the, they have a huge size. They have a big build and they're just doing a whole layer by layer. So it's way quicker, way faster, way better parts, um, both cosmetically and functionally and just so much more efficient. And you can actually produce uh, real parts. There's a lot of companies that are, that are, that are founded on this, like emissary development, um, 100, uh, 100, what's, what's it called? Concepts. Um, a bunch of companies that use this as like their bread and butter. Um, we still use it for various parts and it's, uh, it's, it's nylon. It's a durable nylon, but, uh, anyway, I'll stop rambling about MJF. It's just, it's super cool. MJF is awesome. It, it opens the doors for, for so much. And I've actually got three different parts that are going to going to market with production printing nice. because it's it, injection molding is great, but it's for something that might be, you know, 500 to a thousand units. I could have those next week before yep. I'd even have somebody approve a, even a prototype mold. 
Yeah, it's honestly crazy how with how quickly 3D printing technology has continued to increase how the number that you need to hit to get to injection molding has honestly just continued to uh, continue to go up and up because of how much how cheap the technology has gotten slowly but surely. Yep. So I want to mention something. So I just went through the wall with the Filster 2 or the Floodlight 2. Uh, so I have the it tightened down because I carry a lot of 1911s, 2011s. With my wall through with a larger uh, uh, slide, I had to go to my slightly older version so it would fit because I don't have it cinched down quite as tightly. But yeah, these are fit, just like the original, fitting everything. It's a so universal holster. That holster just, just needs a Surefire Turbo or a uh, Surefire and then... Okay, and then it'll work with practically any pretty file. much everything I mean, except for maybe like a Hudson. <laughs> that's perfect, yeah. though. That's awesome. <laughs> what was it? And then the silencer co thing. Oh, Max, Max. Nine. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, right. It, and revolvers. Uh, Hudson H nine, Maxim, um, and uh, uh, there was a and Chiappa Rhino. It won't fit. <laughs> you go Desert Eagle, but yeah. I think I, I think I've seen oh Desert Eagles out, but the HK oh, Mark twenty three. Yeah. I've I've seen someone I've seen someone do that. Oh, wow. Nice. Yeah, these are great. Uh, I think it was one of Korea's guys carried with that for a little bit, just to see yeah. good. <laughs> so I have one last question for you guys. So you've created a successful product. At what point do you decide? you're going to make a sequel or something up an offshoot or something else that also that might even compete with what you already have, but not necessarily exactly the same. I mean, I think that's kind of just the natural progression of growing things. Um, you know, when I very first started, of course I was just dumb and super naive and, you know, didn't really know what to expect. And it didn't take me real long to figure out that, you know, when I've got one or two SKUs, you know, that might, <laughs> that might be great. That might not be so great. Um, you know, just adding SKUs, giving more variety and availability to things, um, whether it's further model support, um, you know, in my specific case, whether it's shell carriers or optic mounts, you know, applying to different, you know, models of firearms, different footprints of optics and different things like that. Um, I think it's kind of a, a, a just a natural progression of that, um, but also balancing, you know, I, I, I get requests for, you know, a stock adapter for some yeah. shotgun I've never even heard of before. So yeah. that's also a balance to it is, yeah, making sure that you can expand your lineups um, without going drastically, you know, expanding what you've already got while still maintaining the, the idea that it's, it, it's something that the market is actually asking for. I probably what I start. Well, what was that? Oh, I was just going to say, and I, and I just met, mentioned Hudson, wonderful Hi. people, such a cool gun, but unfortunately what they were about to release killed their, killed their sales. Mm. And so that there's that potential. So Andrew. Yeah. I, I almost start immediately. Like, you know, we, we launched something and the comments section already starts filling the next sort of design cycle in, um, you know, whether it's people that were left out for some reason because of compatibility or, 
because um, they've they found something they don't like uh, about it. I think, you know, the the original switchback, immediately everyone was like, I'm going to break my finger and uh, I don't like the clip. And so, you know, boom, those were on the list. And, and I think the only other thing that kind of comes into it for us other than competitive product, where if you see something else come out, you might be responding to that, um, is really just the pace um, for ROI. And sometimes that becomes a part of it where we know instantly what we want to do and we could go out and cut the mold. Um, but if we do have a good product that is, is still solving a lot of problems, you know, we actually want to get, um, you know, the payback on that before we launch the next one. So that cadence can be really important. And, and I always struggle with that a bit because I just want to move on to whatever's better, even if it's just incrementally better. Um, but you know, when you're running a business, you kind of have to, you know, keep that in mind because you could easily sort of your molds could start outpacing your revenue and then, um, you know, it's not a business anymore. Okay, so the, the product that Matt just held up, um, I 3D, I had this 3D printed um, three years ago. <laughs> this is the- You said this first, before COVID. Yeah, this was like pre, this is a pre-COVID 3D print. And this was just the first test to see, you know, whether or not we could substantially alter the exterior shape of the holster in the direction that we wanted. So like when we get back to talking about like whether or not you're leading the target too far, right? There are always constraints. There are budgetary constraints. There are, you know, like has this, um, uh, has the uh, existing product had a long enough lifespan? Has it penetrated the market enough to, mature you know sometimes like you can come out with an iteration of something really quickly but it doesn't have the impact that it would have had if you had sold ten thousand of something you know if if you've got ten thousand gen one users out there your your gen two isn't going to have as big of an impact right you're not um there's not as much um existing word of mouth enough as much um, um, uh, growing customer demand for it. And you're, you're just going to have kind of like, a, you know, your powder's not dry enough for that. And then there's also the other issue of whether or not um, the market's ready for the idea, right? So you have to, get the customers to expect certain things from you and then get enough of them that they're kind of like spreading the word about the product. And then you can meet their future unexpressed um, expectations with the thing that you've had in your head for a while. So like one of the struggles is, operating a company and producing products where everything that you're making compared to what's in your head is obsolete the instant that you're making it, right? Like the, like the, the product trajectory that I'm hoping matches with available technology and with the, the brand growth required to take advantage of that technology, like the, 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 the concepts and executions that, if I could snap my fingers and they would be available tomorrow, 
that I'd love to use make everything that we're doing look look like we're carving wheels out of stone. Um, but at the same time, if I were able to snap my fingers and do that tomorrow, the market wouldn't be primed to want those things yet. Right. So there's some of that tension that dictates when new products come along. And then other times it's like, um, you know, the success of a, a product might subsidize future manufacturing investments quicker than you would anticipate it. Right. So um, sometimes uh, there are opportunities to get in, you know, d- depending on what scale of growth your, your business is at, you know, we went through a, a couple of years where we had like multi hundred percent growth, which all of a sudden unlocked the potential to, you know, spend on injection molding with, without feeling like um, the expenditure was associated with a financial emergency. You know, that's what it used to be like, you know, as a, as a tiny company, you're like, Oh my God, I'm going to spend $5,000 on an injection mold. I really need to make all that money back like right away. But you know, once, once you've kind of like developed your company over a number of years, you can be strategic with those investments. And um, there's not a sense of like emergency associated with product development, which is a much better place to be in than we need a new product and it needs to happen. It needs to happen under budget. And it needs to happen yesterday. And we need to be profitable on it on day one, right? That's that's a, a rough way to run things. I, I see Andrew smiling like he's been there before. <laughs> well, yeah, I always struggle with that because sometimes I do my best work when, you know, you basically lock the doors and start filling the room up with water. And I think you can do that kind of <laughs> financial version of that and uh, and kind of leverage it a bit. But that's yeah, probably we're going to see you in here and fill fill the room up with debt. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> a little pressure makes diamonds, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, a lot of that kind of almost segues into the, you know, the business side of things in terms of, you know, there's a lot of different ways to run businesses, you know, certain product ideas are going to you know, necessitate way less risk. Other product ideas are going to, you know, just by their nature, you know, for example, you, know, you kind of mentioned Hudson earlier, like, um, you know, love those guys, great people, you know, at the same time, like, not them in particular, but, you know, a new pistol platform, for example, it takes a lot to bring something like that to market. There's just massive, massive investment, especially if you're going to try to bring something like that to scale, um, you know, right off the bat. Like, I mean, I can't even, you know, just in terms of how I like to run my business, which is pretty financially conservative and, you know, grow, you know, not try to outpace my growth right off the bat. Whereas, you know, with the products that I make, I'm able to kind of work like that. Whereas, you know, something like a brand new pistol platform, man, just the amount of investment and it's, it, it, it kind of has to be an all or nothing you know, sort of thing at that point where, you know, it, it, it takes a lot to go into it to make it work. So, you know, I think, you know, in terms of how businesses get run and, and the investments get made, you know, kind of has a lot to do with, you know, the individual's personalities and how they like to deal with things, but also um, what those kind of products you know, actually would require to go into, you know, manufacturing or prototyping or, or whatever. 
Yep. I think it's a it's a super hard calculation to know uh, when the successor or like you like you I guess the question was a potentially competing product. Um, it's definitely very hard, but at the same time, um, I mean, I think. I think that generally you'll you'll know to a degree whether or not at least I mean if if you have improvements to be made like oh, I actually a lot of people shit on Sig for their rolling changes which I understand entirely I hate Sig I hate most manufacturers for for various reasons Glock for not innovating and Sig maybe for innovating and testing on customers uh, but. Um, I, I do, I do appreciate SIG role, all, all, you know, continuously updating and improving their products, even though they should release them maybe, uh, later on when they're more tested, but I do appreciate the rolling changes, but if there is something that requires a, a new, say like a new, a brand new frame, um, like, like it's not just like a, it's not just like a rolling change, but it is a Gen two or of some sort. Um, it's uh, I think if if you can do it with uh, reducing costs at the same time of making a better product, uh, an actual like uh, for the customer, a better product, a better functional product. I think that that's a win-win situation, even though sure you do have to, you know, reinvest in two degree with the development, with, uh, tooling, et cetera. But, um, I think while we haven't done great on the production side in terms of development with our systems, we have successfully gone from a very expensive, uh, to produce product that was awesome, but, we've continued to improve it, make it superior, make it functionally better and better and better while reducing the cost of manufacture, even though it's uh, much more durable, it functions much better. Um, we have successfully made it cheaper and cheaper to make. Um, and by, you know, extension, able to produce many, many more able to scale production better. So um, I think that if you can do that, then that's, that's when you should be doing it. But as John, John said, I mean, there is a lot that goes into it and Hudson's the perfect example of, you know, there is such a thing as too soon and bankrupting yourself. Um, I definitely, I think the Hudson's, if I recall, I think their specific mistake was, releasing uh information um if i recall that they weren't available for either they weren't being produced or they weren't available for order even if they were available for, for pre-order it was too or they should have kept on going and then had their this their aluminum frame ready to go ready to ship ready to sell uh and then release information to the public and get everyone excited about it um so if you can do that develop we we try well, I mean, we didn't always do this, but we try and only release you know, release stuff when it's ready, when it's 
ready to go. We're ready to uh, produce and ship and sell stuff, um, sell and ship. But uh, it is definitely a hard calculation. I, I would suggest uh, having, if, if you like, you like it suggested, have a partner or someone to, uh, you know, spring like bounce ideas back and forth and really think about it uh, as much as possible before uh, potentially pulling a Hudson or uh, some other, you know, some other hampering of your own, of your own growth. Um, I'm excited about this holster. I need, I need one of these holsters. <laughs> yeah, we'll get you one. Um, so as far as cannibalizing your own sales goes by accident, um, if there's the potential for all of your customers' demand to instantly p pivot from what you have to what they can't yet buy, yes, yeah, th that's that's trouble. And so, um, you can look you can look this up. There's great great uh, footage of this on YouTube when Steve Jobs came came back to Apple. Uh, he took an approach where he looked at all the stuff that they were making, all the different computers and the Newton and all that other crap. And he came up with the um, uh, four product quadrant, right? Where they had a consumer version and a professional version. That's one set. And then a desktop and a laptop. And everything that they were going to make at that point was going to fit into one of those categories. It's either a desktop or a laptop, and each one comes in two flavors, consumer and professional. And there is a zero self-cannibalizing opportunity there. And it's easy for the customers to know what they want, right? Because when you've got a million different variations of everything, you wind up with a phenomenon called choice paralysis, right? Yeah. If I ask you, hey, do you, how do you want your, how do you, how spicy do you want your meal on a scale of one to 20, <laughs> you'll never be able to make that decision. But if I say how on a scale of one to three, which one do you want? Right? Yeah. Instant. Well, what, right? Well, so, how spicy is your 15? <laughs> right. How spicy is your 15? Well, it's a little bit more than our 12. <laughs> right. And then you'll never know if you should have gotten the, the, the 16 or the 14, which one of those would have been better. Right. Yeah. So not only do you have uh, purchase paralysis, but you also have increased purchase regret. But if you know for sure, based on the product listings that you fall into, I want a uh, you know pro or consumer version of either this style or that style. You're going to be, you're going to have more certainty about your purchase. You're not going to set up uh, a circumstance as a company where you've got like. All of a sudden, people who sh you know should be buying the pro one are uh, all buying the consumer one because you've made your consumer version so overpowered that you know you're just selling pro products for less and cannibalizing yourself, right? So if you have a if e each of your products has a clear enough and justifiable identity in the the universe of your brand you're not going to self-cannibalize right and that um you're probably not going to 
kill a product by announcing something new. Um, one of the things that we try really hard to do, and, and which we did probably too early with the floodlight, was made sure that we killed the old one before the new one was available. One, so that no one could say, I just bought one last week at full price and now I'm pissed <laughs> that there's a new one, right? Uh, that's just unfair to do to people. Um, the the problem that we ran into was that uh, uh, discrete carry concepts is moving their factory exactly when this product wound up being finished. And we can't at the moment get enough clips to know for certain that we could restock the first batch of inventory. And if we went ahead and stocked these in and put them for sale and didn't have an, a firm date on the second delivery of inventory, we, we can't do that to ourselves after the, after the couple of years we've had, like that we would be a meme if we did that. So it's better to wait. And even if we take it in the teeth a little bit for not having the floodlight for sale, but the fact that we are not violating customer trust by selling them something and then immediately double dipping into their pocket with the new product, right? That's, yeah. that's a crappy thing to do. And then also not violating their trust by making it available in a limited degree and then not being able to meet their expectations about a resupply, right? That's a second violation of customer trust. Now, of course, these things have their own life. You know, the, the product happens when it happens. So you kind of have to roll with those punches. But um, announcing something that you don't have yet that would kill your ability to sell what you do have is a rough spot to be in. And if you've got enough products that overlap in terms of functionality, and if your, your product customer fit is really blurry, right? I mean, the thing is what, what, what Apple did, they had the, the, the four product quadrant, but that also corresponds to four customer, distinct customer personas, right? So each quadrant, quadrant has a customer to go with it. If it's not a quadrant and instead it's just kind of this blurry gradient that overlaps a blurry gradient of potential customers, then, then you're going to cannibalize yourself constantly and you're going to drive down your conversion rate because nobody knows what to buy. You're going to drive up your return rate because they don't know what they're getting. And um, you're going to have a customer service catastrophe. I believe we have a couple people that are about to, and they happen to be gingers. They're turning into pumpkins. Oh, we all go to our, our secret place, hang upside down, wrap ourselves in leather, <laughs> the whole thing. So, yeah. Um, well, this might be a good time to call it. It's been yeah, outstanding discussion. Um, before we end, something that we do at the end of every episode is we get final thoughts from all the panelists and also opportunities to throw whatever plugs you want. As I said at the beginning, make sure you're supporting those sources that you found to be beneficial. What that means is when these guys tell you where they're from, what they represent, check it out. If you like what they had to say, financial support isn't always uh, feasible, but on social media likes and shares and subscriptions, that's pretty valuable. And that's something that you can, you can do for free. And of course, that means you have to hit, if you haven't already, hit like for this episode. Adam, what do you have for us? 
Uh, well, I mean, in terms of thoughts on it, you know, I've gotten to be part of a couple of these and this is probably like by far my favorite one, mostly because I think it's like actually in my lane. You know, I do, I do a lot of shotgun training, but at the same time, there's, you know, plenty of people that are way more qualified to talk about shotguns than me. But, you know, at the same time of like being a small business owner that has had to bring things, you know, to market from the ground up and not knowing anything, um, I kind of felt like I could you know, hopefully contribute a little bit. Um, and also, you know, never uh, have really talked to or met or interacted with uh, Andrew, Ben, or Michael. So, I mean, it was good to be on with you guys and, you know, kind of hear, you know, hear your sides of stuff also. It was great. And, you know, John and Tom are always fun for sure. Um, you're good too, Matt. Uh, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, you know, in, in, in terms of, uh, in terms of like my parting ways, you know, Aridus Industries, A-R-I-D-U-S. I know it's hard to say and pronounce and spell. It's easy and... to me. <laughs> but hey, I, I, I've said it before and I'll say it again. It, like, There's not a whole lot of business regrets that I have. But it's like I probably could have picked a better name by the time I realized that it was too late to go back. But, Adam uh, Shotgun Stuff. That's yeah. yeah and, you know, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a great acronym, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, yeah. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I make shotgun stuff, getting into some lever gun stuff, but you know, my parting words as always are I would much rather see you take a bone stock shotgun to a class, figure out what you need to learn, figure out what kind of stuff you know would actually be usable or not usable for you, and then make purchasing decisions after that fact. Yep. You know, I mean I'm I'm happy to you know put my kids through college <laughs> with uh, product sales, but at the same time, I'd rather people spend their money on training before spending money on products. So you know, awesome. that's my words, but it was awesome. a good panel. Glad to share with everybody. Thanks for having me. And you'll be back whether you like uh, it or not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thank Andrew. you. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, thanks so much for having me. And uh, it's been great to hear everyone's, uh, you know, opinions and, um, and advice uh, from the panel. Um, yeah, Theorem's pretty easy to find, and um, you guys, um, you know, appreciate the business if if it makes sense to you. But um, I think the biggest message I would have is there has been no greater joy in my life than taking ideas and turning them into products. And um, so I really do wish that on anybody that has one. Um, you know, take the time to learn about how to develop it, uh, protect yourself if necessary. Um, but it's awesome. It's it's everything you think it is, and um, I wish everyone the best of luck on that. Awesome. Michael? Uh, final thoughts, just uh, it's been an hour to be here. Glad to, you know, it's been awesome being, having watched as many of these as I have, you know, to be on the other <laughs> side of it. Um, You're also probably going to hear yourself at double the speed. Yeah, it's a yeah. good chance. <laughs> um, no, uh, you know, as far as plugs, I mean, obviously, uh, Unity Tactical, we're on, you know, follow us on all social medias, website, unitytactical.com. Um, you know, we really pride ourselves on being an innovative company and really trying to push the envelope. And, you know, on all sides of that, you know, for those who, who haven't seen, we did release a new switch at SHOT Show, uh, Axon. Um, you know, great for those of you who have both laser and light. Um, it's a great switch, you know, um, and everything else. But, uh, yeah, I think that's about it. Cool. Tom, who's the latecomer? <laughs> yeah, it's, it sounds like I missed a lot of good stuff. Um, I definitely 
uh, hope that, you know, wherever you buy, whoever you buy it from, you, you definitely just appreciate kind of what goes into what goes into even the smallest of widgets, what kind of risk people take, um, hopefully what kind of you know, thought process they put into it. Um, and, you know, if you have feedback, you know, I know, you know, going back to the, the T&E and stuff like that, and, you know, we'll sometimes get feedback from customers. Um, you just kind of understand some things are there for a reason, some things aren't, but uh, anything can be better. So, you know, bah, I had some better better that. Um, no, but, uh, yeah, try to understand what you're, what you're doing, why you're doing it, how it relates, and so on and so forth. Yeah, I got words. I ran out. <laughs> No worries. So, and I, and I do like uh, that eight fifty six Apollo with wedge or not wedge with claw. I really, I, do. I hate wings on snowy holes. Yeah, I, I, I do. I like it. I think it's cause I'm so used to it. Yeah. They're just so wide. Yeah. But I'm a large person. So <laughs> yeah, you have the, you, you got the, got the real estate for it. Um, no, but it's it, lots of, lots of neat angles um, on, on getting products to market and, you know, lots of people go about it different ways. I've, I've had a chance to do it. Uh, you know, I, I run Darkstar Gear. Also have uh, got to do some cool stuff uh, professionally. You know, and actually a couple of different walks, you know, putting products to use, not necessarily to market, but, or at least not to a, to a particular market. But, yeah. yeah, there's way, way more to it under the surface. Cool. Ben. Um, this has been a crazy honor. Super awesome. Like uh like Michael was saying, um funny to be on the other side. <laughs> a little bit uh I don't know, surreal. Um oh, I know how that is. <laughs> yeah. First time yeah, I was I ever on a podcast. <laughs> it was just bizarre. Yeah, these podcasts are great. I think uh they're kind of a hidden gem in the, in the, I don't know, people, it's, it's funny. I think the, a lot of the younger, younger generation especially doesn't know enough about them. I think it's, uh, it's almost like for people in the industry, it's like, this is the, this is where you get your information. I, I want to listen back to this just because there's, if I, if I could have had all this information that everybody has been talking about, from the beginning, I mean, that it would have been such a massive, massive help. That's the um, idea. This, everything I want to, I want to make sure that I've absorbed everything that you, that all you guys said, because it's, it's incredible. I uh, look up to you all, all you guys. It's, it's, an, it's awesome what you guys have done. Um, including you, Matt with PMS. Um, sure. I, uh, I really think there's an immense amount of knowledge here. And like, like Andrew just said, I, I also would, uh, I would suggest that if you do have ideas that you really think are phenomenal, that you pursue them, whether you build them yourself, whether you license them, um, it is incredibly rewarding. It is the most rewarding thing I've ever done in my life. It's the hardest I've ever worked on anything. And it's, it's a million times different than just doing any other real job really like yeah. it's it's uh having something in your head some intangible idea that that 
comes from here and then making that physical reality that people then use in, in the professional capacity yeah. and then depend like their lives depend on it. And they, they either, or their, their lives are saved by it. Like, I mean, it, there's, there's a, it's incredibly rewarding. It's, it's, it's insane how awesome it feels um, when you hear stories of your, your products being used. Um, so uh, I'd be happy to help. And I'm guaranteed all these guys are happy to help. Um, I would suggest um, having a partner. You could uh, maybe bounce ideas off of, especially if you're not really experienced in, in bringing ideas to the market. Um, but I don't know. I'm certainly going to re-listen to this podcast because yeah. you guys have a crazy amount of super I would man, I wish I could talk like John, especially John is in, insane how yep. good he is at like taking all this knowledge, all this crazy amount of knowledge and just streamlining it to exactly like it's exactly how I yeah, he is brilliant. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Too bad he's taken. <laughs> <laughs> and where can people find you? Oh sorry. Uh flux uh, flux defense or uh, snake sap system we also have another company coming in a few months that will be pretty radical um i wish i could talk about it but it's uh gonna be in a couple awesome insanely insanely uh innovative products uh cool. i'm very excited about it but that'll but down the line cool and lastly uh, i was gonna make the I was going to make the complete opposite pitch to uh, Andrew and Ben and <laughs> warn people that um, de developing ideas yeah. and bringing them to market is like being either pregnant or in labor for your entire <laughs> life. It is an expensive uphill slog that is full of like compromise and stress and, and and disappointments interspersed with occasionally getting something done that should feel really good, but you're just happy to get it over with at that point. And to save you from all of that, everyone on this panel is standing by and ready to license your ideas from you and save you from the life of being an inventor and entrepreneur. So all of us will be happy to hear whatever great idea you have and uh, bear the burden of this incredible struggle for you so you don't have to go through it <laughs> don't listen to him and that's and that's and that's a completely <laughs> altruistic position to take by the way <laughs> um, <laughs> but you you are right though it, it's insanely I'm, only, I'm really i'm really i'm really only kidding you should definitely do it but if you don't want to do that Everyone here has an email address and a website and you can contact them on that email address and website after you've consulted with legal representation, of course, and uh, discuss potential future ideas with all of us. Uh, I'm John. You can find us at filsterholsters.com. Um, before you buy anything, download our free ebook from the website. Um, people consume our educational resources uh at a rate uh, greater, like at, a, at like a great rate of a hundred to one compared to our products. Um, and, you know, we'd spend a lot of time talking about product design, but we really want you to learn what we're about. And we want you to 
take advantage of the stuff we're giving away for free. One, because it's going to help you a lot. And two, that's how we get the market to be uh, in the place we want it to be when we want it to be in. And uh, it costs you nothing to read the free ebook. And we would love you to check that information out and spread it. Cool. And if, if you didn't see yet, that is the Filster Floodlight 2. People are going to ask. Um, it's comfortable. Estimated roughly, uh, if all goes well, and if we get the deliveries of, um, I mean, we've got pallets of those things on the shelf just waiting for clips. If the clips arrive at the schedule that has been cautiously quoted to us, we're looking at 30 days to be able to launch that responsibly. But fortunately, our existing floodlight sales won't suffer because we don't have it. Yes, yes. <laughs> but even so, the, the ones that people already have are still awesome, awesome holsters. And if you're a guy like me that yep. has a kind of a selection, something like this is a wonderful solution for everything. Or if you're a guy like me who has a Breda 92A1. And or, it's yeah. Real, it's real fun finding holster for those. <laughs> true, true. Yeah, just slap on a weapon light and you have your universal mm -hmm. holster. Nice. cool well thanks to the panel awesome discussion uh if you guys want to do a sequel or talk about educational materials or anything like that we can do that let me know um big thanks to the sponsors big thanks to big tech's ordinance big thanks to overwatch precision that filster company <laughs> primary arms walther big thank you to our patreon subscribers uh, Patreon subscribers were able to watch this live. They were able to put in input, ask questions or whatever. We really didn't have many questions, but um, it's nice to be able to also release these a little early to them. They get, they get this video early. Um, also, as I've said twice already, make sure you're supporting those sources that you have found to be beneficial. If you like what these guys said to say, find them on social media, like subscribe, share when it's useful to you. If you happen to be in the, in the market for a pocket knife, I have the little tiny guy on me right now. I have a code with Scallywag Tactical. If you use the code PNS, all caps, PNS10, uh, that gets you 10% off. And these, these are kind of nice. I, uh, I use them all the time. What else do we have? I think that's pretty much it. We do have a, we have a, a uh, what is it? 736 different Facebook groups. Um, we have an actual physical, tangible, not really, it's not, it's digital, but forum website, uh, primaryandsecondary.com, primaryandsecondary.com slash forum. Uh, all these resources, just like what John's doing, we have all this stuff is for free and it's for your use. And we also work, we work pretty well with John and Phil Stirk, great people. Uh, not so much with Tom though. I don't know why. Um, that was sarcasm. I just need, someone's <laughs> going to get upset. Um, what but, be? Yeah. Uh, have a couple more episodes that I'm still planning out. I don't know exactly when we're going to have things released, but this specific episode will be available probably Saturday. Audio will be released on Friday. Panelists, I'll get you early access because it's just fun to watch yourself. I think that's pretty much it. Um, good talk. I think I'm going to kill the feed now and I'm going to make sure that there is a two-year-old all prepped for bed.
So thank you. I'll talk to you guys later.